Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning, I want to share greetings from uh, Brother Jim Price. I talked to him, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday uh, this week. They were in Manitoba, and uh, he wanted to ask me to greet the folks here. He also, uh, because they've been so busy and on the road, hadn't had a chance, but and I think he sent a letter as well, but he asked me to thank the church for the, uh, the Christmas gift uh, that we sent. Said it was a great blessing and a help. Be praying for uh, Brother Jim as they uh, continue travels and raising support. And I wanted to share that greeting with you. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. I'm going to talk about four proofs of God's love. Four proofs. Now... There's a whole lot more than that. I was talking with Brother Colton uh, for a few moments this afternoon. We're talking about math. Uh, that's not a that's a weird Sunday afternoon discussion, mathematics. And we're talking about uh, calculus. That's an even weirder Sunday afternoon. Amen, Brother Maud. That's a weird afternoon discussion. And I was explaining a couple things and talking about proofs. And uh, I hated proofs. I hate proving anything in mathematics because when I did math, my brain isn't wired like everybody else's brain. Your brain works and my brain doesn't work. And uh, my circuits are wired all different. And uh, I can find the answer, but I don't follow the same path you, found, you followed to get it. And uh, I used to go back and forth with my math teacher over some of my proofs. Uh, and I would say, look, is my answer right or not? Yes, but you couldn't have got the answer the way you did it. I said, look, did I get the answer right or not? And we would go back and forth, and I, I probably should have been a little more uh, submissive to her. But uh, I, I didn't like showing proofs. God likes to show proofs. And by the way, he proves every day his love for you. His mercy is new every morning. Amen. Every morning when you see the sun come up, teenagers... Did you know that that thing, the, the, the bright thing up in the sky, it actually disappears at night and it comes back up early in the morning? Uh, it's not always in the sky, but when it comes up every morning, uh, it's a reminder that he rose from the dead, a reminder of his love for us. And we, we could look at hundreds and thousands of proofs tonight, but I just in this one little passage in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to take a few moments uh, just to enjoy uh, some time together in his word, uh, just to relish in what God's done. Uh, just to praise him, just to worship him tonight. Look with me here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Lord, my heart tonight, my desire is that we would worship you and glorify you this evening. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. Lord, we get a few glimpses into heaven you've given us in your word. 
Lord, John would have written much more if you would have allowed him, but the few glimpses that you allowed John to give us, Lord, it seems every time I see through the windows of heaven, I see worship and I see praise. And Lord, tonight I pray as you taught the disciples to pray, would you make it a little bit like heaven on earth tonight? God, would you help us to worship you a little bit tonight the way we will worship you forever in heaven. Lord, someday we will bow before the throne and cry out with the angels and cry out with the saints of God, worthy is the Lamb. But Lord, tonight you're already worthy. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Help us tonight, Lord, to direct our worship and our praise to you as we look at these proofs of your love for us. Help me, Lord, to preach you right your truth. God, may you be glorified. In your precious name we pray. Amen. What would God have to do to prove his love for you? What would it take for us to say, I know, I know without a doubt that God loves me. And Would it take more money? Would it take better health? Would it take greater happiness in your life? More comfort? A better job? A bigger house? A newer car? What would it take? March 31st, 1995, I think it was. I think that's right, maybe 94. My wife will correct me later. That was my birthday. By the way, there's just a few shopping days left to my birthday. Be aware of that. <laughs> but my wife and I had been dating. We had our first date December 7th, maybe, or 8th. And then this is March 31st. It was a little over three and a half months later. I met her that day as I was going out to go to work. And she gave me a cupcake. It was a Otis Spunkmeyer, I think. Uh, chocolate, double chocolate, I think. Chocolate chip, chocolate cupcake. She had a candle on it. Uh, you know, she couldn't bake a cake in her room, so she bought a cupcake. And did you give me something else that day? I don't remember. I don't think so. She's a cheapskate. And uh, she gave me that cupcake <laughs> and as a birthday gift. And that day... As I was driving to work, as I got in my 1977 Ford Granada piece of garbage, and as I was going to work, me and my buddies, I looked over at the fellow who was my best friend in Bible college. His name's Jeremy. I talked to him just a couple weeks ago. It was his, it was his birthday, actually, a couple weeks ago. I looked over at him, and I said, Jeremy, I'm going to marry Carrie. I'm going to... I'm going to ask her to marry me at Christmas, and we're going to get married next summer. And he said, does she know this? I said, no, but I'm going to tell her. Now, when my wife heard that story later, she decided it must have been the cupcake. So, so girls, that's the secret. you got to give the cupcakes. But the cupcake had nothing to do with it. Too many times, all the little things that we think we want from God, they have nothing to do with God's love. 
But I want us to look tonight at some things that do have everything to do with the love of God. Everything God does, everything God does, he does for a specific purpose. He, he does nothing without cause. He does nothing without purpose. His efforts to mankind are always, if we look in the, the account of creation in Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see that God is always dealing with man to show man his love. Always. He, he, he loves us. He, he does nothing by chance. God does nothing in desperation. There's a wonderful old song, and part of that song goes, of you know, God searched through heaven looking for... God didn't search through heaven. I, I, I like the song. I, I understand the premise. Salvation was not a desperation move. God didn't have to scramble and back in the, the back. Oh, no, man, what am I going to do now? Man, sin. Where do I throw the ball? No, it was planned from eternity. It always was. God knew. So everything God does and everything God has ever done is for because he loves man. God never throws anybody away. For a little over a year now, God's put a burden on my heart. I'm going to have to do something about it pretty soon, but God's burdened me to, to do something that is pretty outside my normal wheelhouse. But I'm, I guess the Lord's going to, I'm either going to do it or God's going to kill me probably God's burdened me to write a book with that premise of don't throw them away we live in a culture today Christian culture where we give the gospel out and we try to reach people and so many churches if that person we reach is not the instant Christian that we think they ought to be if they don't look the way we think they ought to look and talk the way we think they ought to talk and do everything exactly the way we think they ought to in a couple of weeks, we want to toss them away and get started again. God doesn't do that. I love the story in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and he looked through the window and watched the potter as he worked at the wheel and he watched as the potter broke the vessel. But he didn't throw the clay away. He simply started again. Christian, we need to understand the love of God, that God doesn't throw you away. He doesn't throw me away. He desires to use us and to mold us and to make us. Now, does that mean that we're, I'm going to be able to do everything God has wanted me to do? There are times that because of some brokenness that I can't be all that God had wanted would want for me but that doesn't mean God throws me away I love the picture there of Jeremiah as he looks in the potter's house we look at God's love so often through what happens to us daily we look at it as wow something good happened today God loves me 
Oh, man, today was a bad day. Brother Maude fell on the stairs. Boy, it's a bad day. God must not love me. I'm a little worried. My enemy is now attacking you. We have the same enemy, the stairs. We look at, oh, this is good. Okay, I have a good day. This is bad. I've got a good day. Most of you probably know this. My family knows this for sure. If anyone asks me how I'm doing, what do I say, Rebecca? How are you? I say, I'm beautiful. Exactly. No, I'm not beautiful. But I've learned not to gauge how I'm doing according to what's happening in my life. God loves me. When I fall down the stairs, he still loves me. When I, when I disobey him, he still loves me. We look for God's love in the things that happen to us. And we say, God, why are you doing that? We question God. God answers back many times, I believe. Not audibly, but he answers back because I love you. Because I love you. I want to take just a few moments tonight, and I, I don't think I'll be lengthy this evening, but I want to share four thoughts, four proofs of God's love, and then I want to shift gears just a little bit for just a couple very small points into the message. Number one, we find this proof in our text. We're going to be looking just in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Would you look there with me? Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. Are you saved? Proof number one, he quickened me. He quickened me. He made me alive. When I met Brother Bonnie ten and a half years ago, is that right? Brother Bonnie was a dead man walking. He was dead. He was lost. He grew up with a religious past, but he was lost. He believed the Bible, but he was lost. He believed who Jesus was, but he was lost. But just a little over 10 years ago, God took a dead man and he made him alive. Your testimony tonight, Christian, if you are born again, child of God, is you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But he quickens you. When I was in grade 7, I came home from school one day. I walked down the hallway of our home, down the hallway past the bathroom, past the laundry in the hallway, and in my room was on the left, my sister's room, my room. I walked out of my room. When I walked out of my room to go back down the hallway, I looked, and there in the middle of the hallway was a tennis ball. Now I'm a hillbilly. I guarantee you there was no tennis racket, brother, within 100 miles of my house. There was not a tennis ball there because I played tennis. There was a tennis ball on my floor because I had a dog, Boston Terrier. And I looked down the hallway, through the living room, into the kitchen, and laying in the kitchen floor was my dog, stone cold asleep. How many have ever heard a Boston Terrier snore? They sound worse than Pastor Rice snoring, and I'm pretty bad. He was snoring. He was out of it. And in my little juvenile 
12-year-old brain. I hatched a plan. I thought, how cool would it be to line up that tennis ball, kick the tennis ball down the hallway, hit the dog, wake him up. I mean, that's, that sounds fun, doesn't it? So that's my plan. So no shoes on in the house. You know, I ran back to kick the tennis ball, and I kicked it about three inches before you got to the tennis ball on the ground. My big toe snapped in half. The bone broke, and the bone went through the toenail. Blood began to forcefully... Colton, you having, you having trouble yet? I know it's... He's, a, he's very visionary when he hears. Blood is spraying, and I began to scream. My loving mother, she's probably watching still, uh, she yelled at me to be quiet. She might have even said a, a real foul word like, shut up. I don't know what she said, but she's, what's wrong with you? Be quiet. What are you screaming about? My dad was on the roof of our house. He was working on fixing the roof on the back porch. My dad heard my scream through the roof. And he knew something was horribly wrong. My dad jumped off the roof. I don't mean he took the ladder. He jumped off the roof, came in the house, came in, and there I am. Blood squirting. They took me to the hospital. They had to kind of almost kind of set my toe a bit. And they had to cut the rest of the toenail off. And then they had to stitch because the bone went through the toe. They had to stitch the quick, what we call the, the meat underneath the nail. They had to put stitches across that. Now, there's a reason they call that quick. There, there's no doubt. There's some feeling there. And I remember that my dad holding me down, the nurses holding me down, and that was just to get the needle near me, Brother Maud. I hate needles. And they're stitching that quick. It's very much alive. You and I were dead, in Christ, dead without Christ. But he made us very much alive. How do I know God loves me? A lot of reasons, but I can look here in this passage and tell you tonight that God loves me because he quickened me. He made me alive. He gave me spiritual life. He's quickened us in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. Letter E there, he quickened us in Christ Jesus. It's an expression of his mercy and his love towards us. In verse 4, we were dead in sins. In verse 5, we were hell bound. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We've been made alive. I like the way Matthew Henry says it. Matthew Henry, uh, commentator of years gone by. Matthew Henry said, grace is the soul. Grace in the soul is a new life in the soul. As death locks up the senses, seals up all the powers and faculties, so does the state of sin. As to anything that is good, grace unlocks and opens all and enlarges the soul. Observe, a regenerate sinner becomes a living soul. Praise God for that. 
He lives a life of sanctification, being born of God. He lives in the sense of the law, being delivered from the guilt of sin by pardoning and justifying grace. He hath quickened us together with Christ. Our spiritual life, Mr. Henry said, our spiritual life results from our union with Christ. It is in Him that we live. As Jesus said, because I live, He shall live also. How do I know He loves me? From this passage, because He made me alive. He gave you life. He gave you spiritual life. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can we question the love of God? When He said, I love you this much. Oh, I wanted more, God. He gave you everything. He gave everything that you and I might be alive. That we might have life eternal. Greater love hath no man than this, the Bible says in John 15. That a man lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, but God, and I love this verse, probably one of my top Ten favorite verses in the Bible. But God committeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while I was getting better. Not once I became spiritual. Not once I cleaned up my life. But while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for us. I didn't have to improve myself. Matter of fact, it wouldn't have made a difference if I did. I didn't have to prove to him I was lovable. Why? I'm not lovable. He decided to love me. He loved me as I was. He died for the ungodly. By the way, he died for those that we wouldn't die for. When you think of the, the most evil and vile people in our world and in the past, we think of people like Timothy McVeigh. Became popular this last year. And uh, pop culture. Can I tell you that as wicked and vile as the crimes that Mr. McVeigh committed. He, I'm sorry, Mr. Dahmer and Mr. Mr. McVeigh bombing the tower. Uh, Mr. Dahmer, who I was thinking of, who killed and ate people and stored body parts, as wicked as all that was. God said, I, I'm, I want to make available to him salvation. Had he trusted Christ? Charles Manson. The vilest person you can think of in the world that we go, oh, that, pff, that's wicked. You know what God says? I love them. I love them. He wants to make them whole. He wants to quicken them. We live in a system that knows nothing of love. We know a perverted understanding of love. But I want to assure you tonight that God loves you. And he doesn't love you because he wants to get something from you. He doesn't love you because he, he's, he's trying to uh, earn something. He just loves you. And his love isn't temporary, it's everlasting. It's forever and forever and forever and forever. How many of you have ever eaten something that you love so much, you ate so much of it, it made you sick and you didn't want to eat it again? You ever been there? What was it, Josh? My food? <laughs> well, as a boy, I, I like sauerkraut. How many of you like sauerkraut? We made sauerkraut when I was a boy. I like sauerkraut. 
I think sauerkraut's awesome, Brother Mike. It's good stuff. I still like it. But as a young boy, about nine years old, I decided to eat a whole jar of sauerkraut. And I ate a whole jar of sauerkraut. I should have good gut bacteria the rest of my life, Brother Krim. I was sick. I was real sick. I mean sick, sick, sick. I didn't want to eat sauerkraut for a long time. God never gets sick of you. He loves us with an everlasting love. For John 4, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, dwelleth God dwelleth with him, and he and God. And we know and believe the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. God's proven his love through the Son, Jesus Christ. Number two. The number two proof we find here in this passage quickly tonight. Which we find in verse 6. And he hath raised us up together and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Proof number two tonight. He raised me up. He raised me up. He raised you up. You know, remember when Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, all of my sin, all of your guilt and my guilt and your sin and my sin was placed on Him. All of it. I don't believe for one second that Jesus made a limited atonement. Those that would try to pervert the gospel to say that Jesus only died for a certain portion of sin. Can I tell you that if that were true, then Jesus Christ is a liar. And we ought to burn this book. Because he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If the Bible doesn't mean that, if, if it doesn't mean everybody, if there's someone who, no, he didn't die for your sin, he died for yours and not for yours, then God's a liar. And he's a charlatan, and he can't be trusted. Rather, he died for all. He bore all sin, every bit of it, all of sin. It was, it was on him on the cross. It was, hold on, when he came off of that cross, was buried with him, was buried with him. I remember, I believe it was my grandmother's funeral, my dad's mom that I preached back in 90, it was 98. My wife and I have been married a few years. I think my memory's right. I remember at the funeral, my, my cousins, I remember them all taking a note and folding that note up, placing that note in the casket. To be buried with her. Can I tell you when Jesus was placed in that tomb. Your sin was placed there with him. The sin that he bore on Calvary. He took to the tomb. So pastor what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about Jesus. Taking my sin to the tomb. Because he didn't stay there. He rose again. He, 
he rose again, meaning that sin was put ever behind him. In the book of Psalm chapter 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dwelt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are but dust. Look at verse 6 again in our text. It says, And hath raised us up together, and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that phrase, hath raised us up together. Can I tell you those that know the English language better than I do will tell you that that phrase there uh, is something that is past tense. Not he's going to, but he already did. He hath raised us up. So preacher, when did that happen? When did he raise me up? Three days and three nights after they placed the body of our lovely Lord on the ground, when he rose again, you were raised with him. I was raised with him. He was raised incorruptible. Guess what, Christian? I was raised incorruptible in him. I know he loves me. I see the proof of his love. He, he quickened me. He made me alive. He raised me up with him. If you will, I was nailed to that cross with him. I was buried with him. I was risen with him. He brought within the redemption our new creation. I'm not just saved from hell. And I praise God I'm saved from hell. I'm glad I'm not going to hell. But can I tell you, can I tell you tonight that salvation is not just fire insurance from hell? I, I'm glad that I, there's no chance that I can go to hell. I had, I had two people yesterday tell me to go to hell. Brother Mud, I had one person tell me to do things that were physically impossible. I had, had some very rude people yesterday. But two different people told me to go to hell yesterday. That was their words. Now, I didn't say it. I, 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 here's what I said. I said, God bless you. <laughs> that was my answer as I was trying to get my gospel track. But what I wanted to say was I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry you want me to go there, but I can't go. I, I have, I'm saved from hell, but I am saved to heaven. I am raised up. And Christian, let's not forget what we have. Let's worship him. Let's praise him for what he's done as we see his love. I'm made alive. I am risen with him. What a wonderful thing. He's forgiven me. He's pardoned me. He's regenerated me. He's adopted me. He's cleansed me. He's given me a home in heaven. He, he's with me. He's never leave me, never forsake me. And one day he's going to come back and say, Hey, come up here. And I'm going. How wonderful. I'm risen with him. All of this is done in Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Why do we live like we're part of this world? Why do we live like the people of earth? When Carrie was giving birth to Rebecca, it was a very 
very traumatic experience. It was very difficult. It was very dangerous few moments. The doctor came, tried one last procedure, and she told me, she said, Mr. Rice, if this doesn't work right here, right now, on this bed in this room, I am doing emergency cesarean section. It was some tense moments. I, I deal with tense moments with humor. Maybe you've understood that about me. But our doctor, she walked in and she had this, you'd almost thought COVID was in the air. She had a mask on. She had this plastic shield on. She had rubber gloves on. She had her hands up like this. And she was a, I can't remember what nationality she was, maybe East Indian, I think, lady, little lady. She came in and she looked like some kind of alien creature because of all the stuff she had on. And she walked in like this. And uh, quietly to the two nurses that were with me, I said, take me to your leader. Uh, they thought it was funny. She didn't think it was funny at all. Uh, Rebecca thought it was funny. She was laughing in the womb, but they didn't think it was funny. <laughs> Carrie was punching me. But Now, we joke about, you know, oh, not of this world, you know, something extraterrestrial. I think they've been shooting down on UFOs here the last couple weeks. Anyway, you and I, we're not of this world. We are not terrestrial. We are extraterrestrial. We belong to heaven. I've already been raised up in him. There's no reason for me to live like I belong. I, I, I've been made an heir of God, joint heirs with Christ. Eternity is my time frame. So many things we could go into tonight, but we see the love of God in him raising us up. Number three here in our text. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2. Then in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Number 3 tonight, we see here that he shows grace. He shows kindness. Now, if... I'll let Brother Eric be God tonight. His wife would never hear the end of it if he got to be God. But if Brother Eric were God, and somebody came up and smacked him in the face, I mean just pop! Brother Eric's a mild-mannered, genteel gentleman. But I have a feeling if you pop Brother Eric in the face one too many times, he's not going to show grace and kindness. There's going to be a point, like, like Popeye. How many of you remember Popeye? Uh, but Mark, you said your dad said Popeye was your favorite. That was my favorite cartoon as a kid. Popeye's chicken. <laughs> That's my favorite chicken now. But Popeye was my favorite cartoon as a kid. And Popeye had the phrase... I've stood all I could stand, and I can't stand no more. And he'd be pushed just to the edge until finally he was ready to fight. Let's just be real honest. If you were God and you had to deal with you, there would come a point. The point would have come a long time ago where I would have said, Brian Rice, you're done. And yet God shows me grace. He shows me kindness. Amen. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. 
Grace, getting something good I do not deserve. Kindness, why? Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. How wonderful here. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Not just here. Here's a little bit of grace. The exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Here we see his love for the present and all for the future. It's not I want to give you something now, but not later. He wants to give us all throughout our relationship with him and through all eternity grace, kindness. God shows his love every day. Every day. It is of his mercies that we are not consumed. Mr. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, that preached during the Great Awakening. Mr. Edwards, who typed out or wrote down, not typed, he, he wrote down his messages. He was very poor of seeing. He would write his messages out word for word. He was not an orator. He was not a great public speaker. He would write out word for word his message. And it's said of Mr. Edwards that he would bend his head where he was face to face, probably, probably have macular degeneration, some sort of vision problem, as he would get very close to his notes and he would read them. It's said in a monotone voice, Brother Mott. It wasn't about the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. It was about the Holy Spirit of God that led Mr. Edwards to preach the Holy Book of God. Amen. And as Mr. Edwards would preach his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people, not at the invitation, during the service, sinners would crawl on their hands and knees to the altar, begging God to save them. But in his message, he said that we are as a sinner, we are but held by the very spider thread above the very pit of hell. At any moment, could be plunged headlong. Can I tell you, that's where I was. But that's not where I am. Now I have His grace. Now I have His kindness. How wonderful that is. How wonderful that we have the proof of his love. By the way, that grace and kindness speaks of safety. Speaks of assurance. I've been in some dangerous places. I've been in some places that were very, very dangerous. I joke with people once in a while, some of the worst parts of Edmonton. I've been in playgrounds that were more dangerous than Edmonton. I, I've, I've been in some scary situations. I've been in some dangerous situations. But those times I've been in dangerous situations, it was because and while I was sharing the gospel. And I'll be real honest with you, there's never been a time when I've been in a dangerous place sharing the gospel when I've been fearful. Probably because I'm just a, a dummy. But I, I just knew I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> The Lord knows. If he wants me here, then I'm supposed to be here. I remember going in a building, and as I went to go in the building, the police in the police station at the bottom of the building looked at me and said, don't go in here. If you go in that elevator and you do not come back, Chicago police, they told me, we will not come look for you. 
We don't care what happens to you after you go in that door. We're not coming up there. Just so you know, you're on your own. That's not good. Why? Because I like dangerous situations? No, because I needed to share the gospel in that building. Can I tell you that God's grace and kindness are enough? Does that mean that I'm always going to be safe? No. But it means I'll always be where God wants me to be. I'll always be in his will as long as I trust him. By the way, Peter, when he was crucified upside down, he was in God's hand. So, but pastor, hold on a minute. That's pretty dangerous. That, that's not a good thing. He glorified God even in death. We get so hung up on our perceived safety and our perceived enjoyment of life that we forget that it's about God's glory, God's blessing. We see his kindness. We see his grace. The Bible says in Jude, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. By the way, let me, let me stop here just a moment. This isn't the message. But just in case there's anybody here that's struggling with this understanding of eternal security, if you think that you can lose your salvation, then you think God is not able. The Bible tells us right here he's able. Now, what does it say about God if he's able to keep you and he doesn't? Either he's a liar or he's evil. True? One of those things has to be true. So for me to believe, I'd have to throw away so many doctrines, but for me to believe that I could lose my salvation, I've got to either accept that God is evil or God is a liar. That's it. There, there, there's, you can't rectify it any other way. He's able. He's able to keep me from falling, to present me faultless before the presence of glory with exceeding joy. Jude 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Number four, lastly tonight, verse number 10 in our text, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Number four tonight as we see the next proof of God's love for us. He created you. Not only did he create you, but he created you for good works. Good works. For good works. I, I, I love this thought. And number one, we're his workmanship. We're his workmanship. I haven't for years, but years ago I used to build, I used to do some bowyering. How many of you know what bowyering is? Brother Darren's done some bowyering. Uh, I, I used to build longbows. And I several years ago now, probably 16, 17, 18, 19, maybe 19 years ago, I decided to build one for my dad. 
and I didn't use fiberglass. I used God's fiberglass. How many of you know what God's fiberglass is? Bamboo. And I, I did a tri-lamb bow, and I built it out of the front of the bow, the side when you pull the bow, the side people see facing away from you was raw bamboo. And then two other laminations glued together in a coal and a form. And uh, after I glued it into the shape I wanted, then I, I cut it down to shape and profiled and sanded. And I finished that bow. I created it. I crafted it. I wrote, I think, on the top bottom limb or top limb, I can't remember, facing the person holding the bow, Two letters inside of quotation marks. A P and an A. How many of you know what that stands for? Paul. That's what I call my dad most of the time. I call him Paul. One time we were out soul winning together 20 years ago in a church van in West Virginia. And I said something. I called my dad Paul. And as I got out, one of the men said, Marcus, I... Is your first name Paul? I always thought your first name was Marcus. Uh, but I wrote Paul on that bow. I, I created it. It was crafted by me. It was a gift I gave to my dad. Now, most likely that bow will never be worth millions of dollars uh, because I'm not a sought-after bowyer. I'm not a well-known crafter of bows. Because I made it has no intrinsic value to anyone else except my dad. However, there are some things in this world that are much more valuable because who made them? Many years ago, I was sent a gift from a man that I never, I've still never met. A man that I had helped with something I met online and he decided to send me a gift. He was driving through the area where I grew up, and general area, probably within 10 miles as the crow flies across the river from where my family live. And he stopped in a little country store, little everything store, gas station. Uh, as Lois knows what I'm talking about, little general store of everything. They don't exist much up here, but little place, probably half the size of this building inside. And just a little bit of everything, you go in, you can get a few things, and that's it. In the back of the building, there was a, a little wood-burning stove, a little pot-belly stove, and some chairs where you go and sit and play checkers, that kind of place down south. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, they, there in that area near the wood-burning stove and the checkers, there was an old tub. I think it was an old uh, bin of some kind, maybe a vegetable bin, maybe an old barrel, actually, come to think of it, he told me, but there's a bunch of just old things in there, and there was an old knife, an old hunting knife, and this guy saw that old hunting knife in this little general store in this little town near where he knew that I was from that area, and he thought, I want to do something nice to pay him back. He paid a few bucks, maybe 20, 30, maybe 50 bucks, I don't remember, he bought this old knife. It was in a ratty sheath that was falling apart. The knife was pitted and old. And he sent it to me as a gift, and I, I was overwhelmed. That's really neat. That's really awesome, really cool old knife. And thanks to the wonders of the Internet and the interwebs, I began to look, and there was a name on the knife. The name was Morseth. 
I began to Google Mr. Morseth. I began to look for the knives that he created that looked like that. And I began to learn something that caused me to message that man and say, Sir, I cannot accept this gift. I, I need to mail it back to you. I realized that that knife, although it was rough and although it was a little ugly and although the sheath was falling apart, it was very valuable. Not because of its condition. It was very valuable because who made it. And I told the man, I said, sir, I'm sending this back to you. I said, I can't accept this gift. It's worth a lot of money. And he said, if you mail it back to me, I'm going to send it back up. He said, I bought it for you. I only paid whatever it was for it. He said, it's yours. And I told him, I said, sir, I'm not going to sell it. I said, I'll keep it uh, as a reminder of your love and you know, appreciation, the gift he sent me. Several years later, a friend who's a custom knife maker stole it from my house and made it look brand new again, and his wife made a custom sheath for it. That didn't add value to the knife, but the value, as far as the world's concerned for that knife, is because of the man, the famous man that made it. That's its value. Christian, can I tell you your value? You were created by him. The master. The master made you. The creator of all things. I have his love because he signed me. His signature. He made me. He made you in his image. I was made by God. I was his workmanship. I've been created in Christ Jesus. And notice the phraseology here in Ephesians 2. Unto good works. Created, by the way, means you didn't just happen. It was purposed. It was planned. I was created in Christ for a specific purpose. I need to find out what that is. Ephesians 4.11 in our text, or just a few verses away, a couple chapters away, says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God has something for you. He made you. Your worth is because of him, not because of you. These good works we have mentioned here have been preordained or foreordained by God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8 says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. I want to make a statement. If you have a pen, I encourage you to write it down. I believe a, a powerful statement about this truth. Notice in our text here, we were created, Christian, you and I were created to walk in these good works. Don't miss that. You and I were created to walk in these good works. So, listen to this statement. They await your doing. God created you to walk in those works. 
Can I tell you that they're waiting on you? They await you to do them. They await me to do them. By the way, when I do obey the Lord Jesus Christ, when I follow Him, when I honor Him in my life, I am realizing every step, every work, everything I do is a reminder, God loves me. God loves me. I've got a dear friend who got saved out of serious alcoholism and drunkenness and drugs and horrible, horrible life. Him and his wife, before they got saved, they used to get high on drugs and get angry at each other and shoot at each other with pistols in the house. And I don't mean they were pretending. I mean, they were trying to kill each other. But they would get so high on drugs that amazingly God spared them. They didn't. Several times they tried to kill each other. Somewhere tonight, Brother Hicks is standing behind the pulpit like this, preaching the word of God as an evangelist in the southern U.S. Every time he opens the Bible, lays on the pulpit it's a reminder he used to be laying down lines of cocaine he used to be laying down empty beer bottle after empty beer bottle he used to be picking up the pistol and trying to kill his dear wife but praise the Lord God created him and ordained him to walk in good works it's a reminder Christian I give that example because it's easy for you to see and, and see the difference. But I hope tonight you understand that the difference is in you as well. Amen. It's in you as well. So, Pastor, I, I was never a drunkard. I, I was never a drug addict. I never tried to kill my wife. Well, maybe I tried to kill my wife. But I, I, I didn't do those things. Remember, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He made you alive. He didn't just make you alive to make you a scarecrow to do nothing. God made you alive unto good works. And they're waiting for you to do them. Just a couple of thoughts as we close here tonight. How do we walk in good works? How do we walk in good works? Very, very quickly. By showing gratitude for redemption. By showing gratitude for redemption. Giving him praise for what he's done for us. For dying on the cross. Forgiving our sin. Placing us in the heavenlies. What if you were unsaved on your way to hell tonight? That's where you'd be without Jesus Christ. How do we walk in good works? By showing gratitude for redemption. Next, number two. By surrendering to sanctification. By surrendering to sanctification. I shared the story of my big toe breaking in half. They had to stitch it up. I didn't want them to stitch it up. I didn't want to surrender to have it stitched up. My dad and a bunch of nurses had to hold me down so they could stick needles in me, and then they could sew me up. But it needed to be done. It had to be done. You and I need to surrender to letting God set us apart and sanctify us for his purpose.
to the growth process. First Peter or Second Peter chapter one verse five. I'm not going to turn there tonight, but virtue, on knowledge, on temperance, on patience, on godliness, on brotherly kindness, on love. We need to surrender to that process. Number three, how do we walk in good works? I'm going to close with this thought tonight. By serving. By serving in all areas of good works. What is it God wants you to do? Not what is it God wants the pastor to do. Not what is it God wants your spouse to do or your your child to do or, or Brother Colton to do. What's God want you to do? Hey, teenager, what's God want you to do? Oh, I'm just a teenager. <coughs> David, a teenager, walked down in the valley of Elam and said, you will not defy my God. He affected his whole country. His whole country. Young married couple, what's God want you to do? Older couple here tonight, maybe your kids are grown. What's God want you to do? What is it God wants you to do? Has he set something aside that he said, okay, I've got some works for you to do. At least once a week, sometimes a couple times a week, Colton and I will sit in my office, our office now, And I'll say to Colton, hey, here's some things I want you to do this week. He'll pull out a notebook. Okay. I'd like to get this, 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 and this done. Here you go. Now, I may ask him, hey, did we get that done? Is that, but that's not my work. That's his work. I believe God has work for you. He has good works for us. He's got them set aside. He created you unto good works. When God calls, just like little Samuel, the day's gone by. Won't you answer? What do you want, Lord? Okay. You know why you don't want to answer? Because you don't want to do what God wants you to do. I know. You know why? Because I don't always want to do what God wants me to do. How do we walk in good works? By serving in every area. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity tonight to walk in the works that you've prepared for us. Lord, we could spend so long talking about the proofs of love that you have for us. Lord, I praise you. I thank you. I want to worship you tonight for your goodness and your love. As well, Lord, tonight, I want us to walk in those works you have for us. Lord, I believe with all my heart tonight that you have prepared some works for every one of us. And, Lord, a lot of them don't get done. Because you prepared them for us, for no one else. God, would you help us to be surrendered tonight? Help us to walk in them. Help us to surrender to sanctification. Help us to praise you for our redemption. God, may we walk in that love.
that you've proven over and over and over again in scriptures. Lord, would you be glorified tonight during this time of invitation as we set aside some time just to worship you, to praise you, to yield to your purpose. May that be the case. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Remember Colton. Let's sing together. 301. Only trust him. Number 301. you're so good to us Lord we offer our praise and our worship to you for you're worthy of it Lord may we do more than sing your praises may we do more than lift up your name in this place with our brothers and sisters in Christ but may we publish your name among the heathen may we speak of your goodness every day may we be reminded of your love as we tell others of it. And God, may we find those works that you have for us. May we pick it up on our shoulder. And may we walk in that path and that plan that you have made just for us. How wonderful that purpose, that fulfillment. Bless us now, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming. I love to be with God's people, and boy, tonight is no exception to that. It's wonderful to be here. Choir, thank you for singing, and I appreciate that, and then everybody who participated. Uh, great job, Brother Colton, leading the singing and getting us going on that. I love to be in God's house, and I'm very thankful. I had the joy. My dad got saved when he was um, 11 years old. Uh, he, his mom was an alcoholic. Family was dysfunctional. Challenges in every way. Crystal balls and carrot cards and things of that nature. And a Sunday school teacher in a local church was given a room by his pastor and said, Would you 
would you teach the junior age boys? And he wasn't content to have one or two kids. He went out every Saturday and sometimes the nights and tried to find kids to come and be in his class. And he, my dad, my uncle told me, just a little small fella compared to my uncle. He said, just a little man, John, but that guy would get us to go in there and he would teach us the Bible. And of course, your dad and I, we just tried to stay away from mom on the weekends because it was so difficult to be there when mama was drunk. And so he gave us a chance to be there, taught us the Bible, and gave us a cookie and a, a cup of, of Kool-Aid, and, and we went off to big church. One day, he tapped your dad on the shoulder and said, Richard, could you stay after class? He put a folding chair in the corner. That's where the teacher sat. He turned another folding chair facing him, and he said, Richard, sit here. And he began to take a Bible and show your daddy how to be saved. And he said, that day was the best day of your dad's life. He always, he came into big church about 20 minutes later, said, Douglas, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I know for sure I'm saved now. I'm going to heaven. Douglas, you're going to hell. You're not saved yet, you know. And he was giving it to him. He said, Richard, we're talking, just listen in church here, man. You know? And all week he was so excited. He went home and told mom he was saved. And mama was drunk. And she said, no, you can't be saved. The Bible says you have to be 12 to be saved. And you're still 11. And... Uh, <clears throat> He said, no, Mama, I'm saved. I know I'm saved. And that week, that week, all week long, your, your dad was so excited. I told, I told him, I said, listen, tell the teacher to tap me on the shoulder today. I want to sit in that chair. And the next week he said, I got saved. The teacher showed me how to be saved. And, of course, what a blessing to know that a local church did its job. Everybody gets saved. There has to be three factors. There has to be the Word of God because faith cometh by hearing. There has to be the Spirit of God because He has to bring conviction of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. He's the one I can't bring anyone conviction. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, but I'm glad He does His job. And then the third factor is a local church has to do its job. A local church needs to protect and to propagate the truth. And, uh, boy, the way you keep the truth and protect the truth is by keep getting it out. <laughs> You ever hear something real funny? You heard a joke. You say, oh, man, when I go home, I'm going to tell my family about this joke. And you get home and you can't remember the joke? <laughs> that ever happened to you or is it just me that happens to you? Oh, it's frustrating. You're like, oh, it was so funny. I laughed. Oh, what was it? You know how you can remember a joke? Tell a joke. <laughs> you tell it, you remember it. You know how you keep the truth? You tell the truth. Amen. You keep getting the gospel out and you'll keep that. So many churches. And the Bible says the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. truth. Yeah, there's a lot of churches. They have buildings, they have parking lots, they have cars, they have pastors, have programs. They just don't have the truth. Couldn't find the truth there with a flashlight. And you went to ask the pastor how to get to heaven married that they wouldn't know. He or she wouldn't be able to tell you. Wouldn't be able to tell you how to get to heaven from there because they've lost the truth. And boy, I'm so glad for local churches and uh, each of our pastors that are here, you represent. Uh, a local church and the vision. You're the captain of world evangelism. And I am so glad that you are doing what God's called you to do. There's just two positions open in Christianity. One is to be the pastor of your church. The other one is to help your pastor pastor that church. And that's if your job is to pastor, then do the best job you can. If your job is to, is to help your pastor, then decide, you know what, I want to be a dedicated helper. And I'm going to help my pastor Pastor the church God's given to pastor and do the very best you can do in any arena and play your role. And it's wonderful. Labors together with God. I've been thinking about this theme since uh, 
Pastor Rice sent me an email and told me this is what they're going to be doing, and, and I'm excited about this. He's hoping to baptize son, someone Sunday morning and break right through that, laboring together, just break through that and uh, be excited about that. 149 days without an accident, and the last accident was Brother Rice. He had an accident, and so this is going great right here. And so you guys all be careful going down the steps tonight. We don't want to make sure you're here for the safety meeting tomorrow morning at 8.30, all right? And uh, we'll, I don't know, we might, we might just eat, eat too many donuts and drink too, many too much coffee. We might have an accident after that. But uh, it's a joy to be with you. My wife and I are so thrilled to know what God is doing north of our border. But we're grateful for what God is doing south of your border, too. And, and I'm glad that we have a time. And it's a great time to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, we can find all kinds of problems. But nothing happened in politics keeps me from telling someone else about Jesus Christ. Nothing happened in the world or attacks are going to keep you from going across the street and talking to someone about Christ or giving out a gospel track, as Pastor said just a moment ago. I'm so glad he said that. You know who gives out gospel tracks? People that have them. <laughs> if you don't have them, you're not going to give them out. I, I gave one today to a guy named Jason. I said, Jason, let me tell you, this tells you about Jesus. He said, Pastor, I'm from India, and I just got baptized a few weeks ago. He goes, I was Hindu, but now I'm, I'm a Christian. I just became a Christian. I said, oh, that's great. We're going to talk more about that in my stay there at the hotel, but I'm looking forward to that. You know, it tracks what they do. It tracks, determines someone's curiosity. You know, when you give someone a gospel track and they tear it up and throw it in the ground, you can take away that they're not really interested right now, right? You can say, oh, they're not real curious right now. That's what happens. They determine someone's curiosity. If they hand it back to you or lie to want it or whatever, you just know well, that they're not ready right now. They need a little more sunshine of God's love. They need a little more moisture from God's grace and His heavens to, to, to land on their heart. They're just not interested right now. So when you give a track, you can determine someone's interest. Now, if they take it and start looking at it uh, and start looking at that and say, you know, I've been looking for a church. Okay, now you know there's some interest there. Now you know you can, and they open up conversation with people. You can begin to talk with conversation. And then another thing I love a gospel track I love is they go places that you're not going to go. They'll end up in junk drawers and, and in people's pockets. I have a sweet little lady. She's a, a missionary's wife in Belarus. And her daddy was drunk on the, on, on the platform of a uh, train station. And somehow or another, someone gave him a track, and he took it. He put it in his pocket. He stumbled on home, and his wife pulled his clothes off and took his jacket off, and he passed out. And she looked at his jacket, and she found a track. And she had it set up into the wee hours of the morning and began to read that track. And by herself, she accepted the Lord as her Savior. Later that next week, she led her daughter through that track, and that little girl at 13 years old accepted the Lord. And now she's a pastor's wife in Belarus because of a gospel track. I remember one day watching a man kind of come into the church a little bit late, and he was over here on my right. And I saw him come in. I was very interested, but I preached the message and shook his hand. And he said, uh, I, I said, uh, I said, what brings you? He goes, oh, you wouldn't believe it. He goes, uh, Someone gave me a paper, and, um, and, but it's been a long time. And I said, I said, well, listen, can I talk to you about it? He goes, no, no, can, can you come to my house? His name was Andy, and then his wife's name was T, and I went to Andy and T's house, and we went and talked to them. And 
went through the gospel track, got, went through the gospel with them, and they both accepted Jesus Christ. He said, you know what happened? I was, um, he said, about, about a year and a half, two years ago, I was at a funeral of a family member, and a lady walked up to me, and she told me a track, and I have twin daughters. He said, you need to get those girls in church. You need to take them. Because by that time, I had a good job. I was doing good. I didn't have an interest in church. He said, I took the track, and I don't know how, but this over the last few weeks, I've been going through a hard time. He goes, that job I had, I got to have to get another job, and it doesn't pay as well. So I'm going through some problems with my wife, and the kids are struggling. I'm just not doing good. And Sunday afternoon, I was cleaning out a junk drawer, and I found that paper. I looked on there and said, you know, I can make it. It's only 4.30 now. I can be at that church the time that it starts. I just drove to the church tonight. And that's what God did to bring him to Jesus Christ, a gospel track. You know, you never can know what might happen with that. And I'm glad Pastor brought that to our attention this evening. And I love, love being with you. And I'm really glad to share a few moments. I know we didn't get in here to get out, but I don't want to be a long time. I heard about one guy. He said, I got so much to say in the message, I don't know where to start. A little kid in the back says, start somewhere toward the end. <laughs> so uh, we'll try to get started here shortly here in just a second. And, uh, but I am so glad to be with you. And I'll tell you a little bit more about our story maybe tomorrow. But I uh, had the joy to be raised in a Christian home. And my dad met my beautiful mom, Janelle, and they were married. And my dad's lived with Jesus for 28 years. But um, my mother had a great uh, background. Her, her dad was a Christian. Her mom was a Christian. And, and one of his grand, her grandparents were Christians. And, but um, they met each other, and God gave them a love relationship. They had six children. My name is John. I'm their oldest son. They, I have three brothers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, we're all pastors of a church. We pastor a church in Indiana and Illinois, Texas, and Tennessee. And then we have two sisters, Acts and Romans. I'm just joking, not really. Uh, their names are Jan and Mary. But, but uh, my sister is a missionary in a, in a Muslim country of Adjur Bashan. And my other sister has taught in a Christian school for years. And so thankful for churches like this one. And uh, my dad had happy feet, so he didn't stay in one place very long. and moved around a lot. And, um, and, but we always had good men of God. Sometimes the church buildings were a little large, like this one was. Sometimes they were smaller. Sometimes the pastor was older. Sometimes he was younger. Sometimes he preached really long. Sometimes he preached really short. I like those short, short uh, messages. They had different, different styles and different backgrounds. Some went to Bible institutes, and some got master's degrees from college. One thing I just remember about my pastors, they all loved the Lord. And they did the best they could do, and they preached the Word of God, and they opened up camps and took us to camps and BBSs, and, and they fixed the buildings, and they put fuels in vans and buses and picked up people and took us to nursing homes, like Pastor Arbo was telling about just a few moments. What a great testimony that is. And it just did the right things the right way for the right reasons. And, boy, I'm so blessed by that. I got to watch that. I never thought I'd ever be a pastor. I was a school teacher for 11 years, and I had managed to preach seven times in my 11 years after I finished Bible college until I, until I became a pastor. And uh, three of those times, I was so nervous, I got sick and threw up, and it was miserable. And the other four times, the audience got sick and threw up, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. But I was grading my high school English papers, and, and on April the 18th in 2000, and a phone rang. I picked it up, and 
It was a deacon of a church, and they had not had a pastor what would be 13 months without a pastor. And uh, they said, really, everything, everyone is here is here because they want to be here. Everybody else has kind of left and wonder if you would be willing to come and be our pastor. And I said, well, you know, I'll pray for you, but I don't think I could be your pastor, you know. I could think about a couple people that might help you. And he goes, well, we don't want your recommendations. We want you to consider being our pastor. And that changed my life. And for these last 24 years now, almost, I've had the joy to partner with my wife and God's people and uh, in the work of the Lord. And it's a wonderful thing. It's not an easy thing. It's not always the devil. The devil's strategies have not changed to attack the shepherd so he can scatter the sheep. They're always banging away. Every pastor has a bullseye on him. Every missionary has a bullseye on him that the devil's trying to get him to sit still for a second so he can let go his arrows of doubt and hurt and difficulties. That's why you want to be a blessing to your pastor and uh, be an encouragement to them. Uh, pastors struggle. It's not easy sometimes. I'm not seeking for any sympathy. I'm just telling you. Uh, they're just, you just got to put your pants on the same way everybody else does. You're just a human being. You have a different position. But uh, pastors oftentimes, they struggle with inadequacies. They don't feel like they're worthy to do it, and they're not doing a good job. And if they were doing a better job, more things would happen. They, they get bad thoughts that come to their mind that, and, and there's always bullies and critics, somebody in the congregation and somebody on the Internet, someone who watches the, the live stream just wants to give them an email or call them or text them and say that wasn't right or you need to study your Bible more or whatever. Just always have an opinion about something. Financial pressures, whatever financial pressures a person would have, they have a, more so in the ministry because God has designed money to be in the middle of things. And it's just... It's challenging. It's difficult. Uh, people, you know, when they call your pastor, they, you know, no one calls, you know, call nurse, call doctor, call policeman. But they'll say, call pastor. <laughs> you know, someone dies, call pastor. Have a baby, call pastor. You know, want to get married, call pastor. Can't pay your rent, call pastor. <laughs> <laughs> Having financial problems, call pastor. Marriage problems, call pastor. And you know, that's a wonderful role in the life of believers. At the same time, there's a lot of pressure that goes with that. A lot of challenges. And I, uh, I thank God for the men of God that are here. And I thank you for coming. And I'm thankful for this church, Cornerstone Baptist Church. Thank you for hosting the meeting and, and expending. Already you've been taking offerings over and over and praying for the meeting. And... Uh, I know a little bit about hosting a conference, and it's just not done on spare time and pocket change. And it, many of you who paid and taken time off work to come and be here and spend a couple days with us, thank you for coming. And uh, your presence and your participation are really big. Uh, we were going to have this meeting whether you came or not. <laughs> but because you came, it's a lot better. And your presence encourages me, it encourages my wife, it encourages Pastor and Mrs. Rice, and actually everybody around you. It's just a blessing that you would take the time and effort and energy to come. We're glad to be with you. Looking forward to sharing time together as we talk about laboring together. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. 4, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. Of course, the theme of the conference is laboring together, and that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Bible tells us 
Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. Uh, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. By the way, God's looking for faithfulness, and he rewards faithfulness. Um, it, and really, faithfulness is the key to fruitfulness. And we want to be fruitful, but the truth of the matter is, God's looking at faith. He doesn't say, well done, now good and fruitful servant. Now, he wants us to be fruitful, but uh, we don't know all that's going on. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, another time, maybe, but... Uh, one thing the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells us that, that um, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. See, what's the Lord going to do when he comes? He's going to pull back the curtain of the evil works of darkness. What was really going in the satanic world against what, was going, what, 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 what we're trying to accomplish. And then he'll pull back another curtain, and that is the motives of the heart. What was really going on in, in here? Not only in your heart, but the heart of your adversaries, the heart of the people. And then shall every man have praise of God. And boy, friend, that's what we want to do. We want to, we're going to see Jesus. We're going to spend the rest of our eternity with him if we know him. We certainly would like to be faithful to him while we have a chance. And this is the parentheses of time. If you're going to do your giving, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. Okay? Uh, listen, if there's no soul winning in heaven. There's no gospel tracts in heaven. There's no need for it. There's not going to be a missions conference in heaven. There's not going to be a, an offering taken in heaven for a building someplace. No, if you're going to do that, you've got to do that now. If you're going to witness, you might as well witness now. If you're going to give, let's give today. Let's find what we can do today and, because uh, Jesus is going to come. And if he doesn't come in our lifetime, we're going to see him. And he says, it's the point of every man wants to die. And after that, it's the evaluation. And we'll give an account of the deeds done while in our body, while we're still breathing, what we did with our time and our talents, our, our training, our trials, our, our tribe, our, 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 uh, our teaching. Whatever happened to us, do you, I don't have to give an account for you. You don't have to give an account for me. But to whom much is given, <laughs> much is required. And may the Lord help us to be faithful about that. And he said, we're, but we're laborers together with God. I think sometimes every once in a while we get in a little thought that we think, oh, man, I want to do great things for God. I'm not in that group. I want to do great things for, with him. <laughs> I'm not interested in trying to press him. I can't do that. But I like going where he's going. Years ago, we have nine children. All of them are girls except for seven. And uh, we have all those kids. And, but when those kids were little, my wife, we'd get, uh, every few years, we'd get some nice carpet. And she'd say, John, let's take our shoes off at the door and, and put all the shoes there. And boys, so that was what we do. We would do that, and our kids did the same thing. So I'd come in and, and get my, uh, my shoes off and put them there. But whenever it was time to get my shoes on, you know, I'd, just, I'd, start, I'd sit down in the chair by the door and start putting my shoes on. Inevitably, one of the little kids would come up to me, and they go, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. i say, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're scurrying around trying to find their shoes. And then they get them together, and they go, Daddy, Daddy, I go, I go. I said, where am I going? I don't know. You know, they didn't know where I was going. They just wanted to go where I was going. You know why they want to go where I'm going? Because I have money, and they're broke. <laughs> I can drive a car. They can't drive a car. 
I like to stop at Tim Hortons. <laughs> I like to stop at a, at a convenience store. I like to get a snack every now and then. So they know if they go with Dad, he's got control, he's got money, and he likes snacks. You know, the truth of the matter is, when God puts his shoes on, you need to get your shoes together too. And say, Lord, I want to go where you're going. I want to do what you want me to be done. And that's important. Boy, that's important for all of us. Tonight I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, laboring together through trials. Difficult times are, are just everyone has them. I have them and you have them. Maybe some of you say, Pastor, I, I'm not going to need this message. I'm doing good right now. Well, bless your heart. That's what they say in the South. If, they, if you don't really like someone, you just say, bless your heart. No, no. no, I'm just teasing. But you know, the truth of the matter is maybe you came here and said, Pastor, I, I'm doing great. I'm happy for you. Keep breathing. Because you're going to probably have some difficult times. You know, the Bible's all about people who had some difficult times. Uh, if you won't study, God tells the good and the bad and the ugly. He tells the good days of David. He tells some bad days of David. He says the good days of, of Saul when he was humble and his side. He talked about we're chasing donkeys. Then he talked about a time where he became presumptuous. He talks about Peter preaching at Pentecost, but he doesn't leave out that Peter cursed and denied the Lord. He tells the good and the bad. He tells about Paul and his missionary journeys and tells Paul and his big spat with, with uh, Barnabas. He kind of tells the good and the bad. Trials are reality. You can't listen to the Apostle Paul without reading 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and he goes through the litany of different things that he had gone through. Telling you what, when I look at that life, every once in a while someone will say, boy, you rode an airplane four hours with you big, tall, lanky guy and probably had to eat your knees. I always think about that. Uh, it's not so bad compared to the Apostle Paul's shipwrecks. I think I'll just take an airplane ride for three hours. It's not that big of a deal. But boy, he went through some difficult times. And Apostle Paul tells a little bit of a strategy that he goes through when he's laboring together with the Lord through some difficult times. We'll talk about that a little bit tomorrow with the pastors and the men laboring together through distractions and frustrations and attacks and difficulties. It, it comes. What did the Apostle Paul say? Well, if you would please look at 2 Corinthians chapter number uh, 4, and let's read this if we can. If you're comfortable, uh, I want to make you uncomfortable, okay? I'm going to ask you to stand one more time if we can, please. You heard what the pastor's job is to do, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> and so let's look at this real quickly if we can. Verse number 8. Uh, verse 7. How about reading verse 7 with me? Everyone ready? Together. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power might be of God. Verse 8 says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered into death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, 
the life in you. Would you read verse 13, please? We, having the same spirit of faith, Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Verse 15, for all things are for your sakes. Redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. Verse 17 and 18, let's read it together. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen. Our Father, I thank you for the privilege to be an extension of Pastor Rice uh, at this congregation tonight. And Lord, thank you for everybody who's here and then those who will come tomorrow after their midweek service is over. God, would you please work in our hearts? I know I'm nothing. I know you're everything. I know that you do not need me, but once again, I need you, and I pray you please help me. Thank you for the sweet friends who are here. Help me to say what I need to say fairly rapidly tonight, Lord. It's a long day. Many have driven a long time. But I pray you administer on the inside while I try to share, share a few thoughts on the outside. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul is spending the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter number 4 talking about the wonderful privilege of getting people the gospel of Christ. All things are that because we have been given the, the gospel message in earthen vessels. Uh, it's, we're the vessel and the gospel is in us through the Holy Spirit of God and we're supposed to get it out to other people. But he goes into a little bit of a testimony. He said, look, we are troubled on every side. He said, I just feel like trouble is meeting me on every front. When I go over here, trouble is here. When I back up, trouble says I'm here. When I step forward, trouble. When I move over, there he is again. I'm troubled on every side. Have you ever had a day like that where it feels like the trouble just is all around you? Trouble's every place. The birds singing out your windows, a vulture. <laughs> it's not a good day. Difficult things. You, you, you're thinking to yourself, you can't make this stuff up. This is crazy. How much opposition I'm getting, how many difficulties I'm having. Well, Apostle Paul is saying, you know, I have a day like that. Your mama told you you'd have days like that. And this is one of those days. It's difficult. He said, we're troubling every side. But the Bible says, but we're not stressed out. We're not distressed. He said, I'm perplexed. He goes, I got more questions than answers. I'm scratching my head so much. I, I don't understand why is this happening. I'm perplexed. But I'm not in despair. He goes on to the next verse, I think verse number 9. Look at it, if you would please. He says, we're, verse 9, persecuted, but I haven't been forsaken. God's still with me. He says, I'm cast down, but I, I'm not destroyed. You know, whenever you have difficult trials of your life, and everybody has them, teenagers have them, single adults have them, married adults have them, senior saints have them, 
Pastors have them. Pastors' wives have them. Hey, nobody's exempt from problems. But someone said if all of our problems were hung out on the line, at the end of the day, you'd pick your problems and I'd pick mine. But we all have them. If we knew everybody's heartache in this room, if everybody just said, like, if just the people in the choir, and these are precious people, but if each of them just said, you know, one of the worst things ever happened to me, if each of them gave a testimony, we'd probably start crying and, and, and disbelief that how could they sing in the choir and have that happen to them if they revealed some of the deepest hurts. But Apostle Paul says, man, we're, we were, this, it's not a walk in the park what we're going through. He said, but I've learned a few things that I'm going to share with you. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He gives some strategies of what to do when you don't know what to do. What to, what to, what to do to, to work through the trials of life and labor together with God even though you got some pressure. Even though you've got trouble on every side and lots of more questions and answers and you're going through uh, times of persecution, you, you haven't been forsaken. Or even fallen down, but you're not destroyed. What do you do in times like that? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul did. Let's just see what he did. Number one, the Bible tells us that he believed God and he told him, I believe you. He believed God and he verbalized his faith in God. Look, if you will, please. He quoted Psalms 116 in verse number 13. Would you look at it? We having the same spirit of faith. According as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I what? We also believe, and therefore speak. You know, one of the first things you can do when you have difficult times or trials that come to your life and my, my life, one of the things we need to do and make a shortcut to it is to say, God, I trust you. Amen. I don't know what's going on, but I trust you. Uh, James said like this, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. I don't know about you, but trials and different kind of trials and joy don't go in the same sentence with me. When I have a problem, I do not want to work through my problem. I want to transition out of my problem. <laughs> Yesterday. But God wants to oftentimes transform me through my problem. And give me trust in Him. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. The first thing that, that Paul said, one of the first things he does, number one, he says, you know what? I believe God and I verbalize my faith in him. I've, I've spoken. You know, that's, that's what happens when you get saved. I was witnessing to a lady last week, Katie, and I got to share the gospel with Katie. And Katie, at the end, I said, Katie, if Jesus is willing to accept your sin, would you be willing to accept his sacrifice? Because I've been waiting to do that, okay. I said, okay, do you believe you're a sinner and you can't save yourself? Oh, yes. Do you believe that sinners deserve hell to be separated from God forever? She said, I know. Do you believe that only Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection could forgive your sin if you would come and accept him as your Savior? If he will take your sin, will you take his son, Jesus Christ? She says, yes, I am. I said, you know, the, the Bible says, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, Katie, and with the mouth. Confession is made. You know, that's how I got saved. When I got saved, someone told me, and they said, do you believe that, John? I said, yeah. He said, now would you ask the Lord to save you? For whosoever shall. Oh. 
You know, that's how we got saved. If you're here today, you're not sure if you died, you go to heaven, please don't pass go. <laughs> don't collect $200. Don't, don't do anything. Don't leave. Don't get in your car without. Say, well, my, well, my mama thinks I'm saved. It doesn't matter if your mama thinks you're saved. Well, my pastor thinks I'm saved. It doesn't matter that. Either you and God know that. If you don't know for sure you're saved, don't gamble. The greatest mistake in the world is to go to hell over a mistake. Make sure you know. Well, I'm not sure I remember when I got saved. That's because you weren't there, okay? You need, to, you need to have a time and a place when you get that settled. When you exchange your sin for God's Son. And when you do that, you believe in your heart and you confess with your... But after we're saved, it doesn't stop with that. After we're saved... The just shall live by faith. And faith needs to be verbalized. When you have a difficult time and trouble backs you into a corner, maybe that's when you need to say, God, I trust you. I trust you. The Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Who giveth to all men and upbraideth not, and it shall be. But let him ask in Faith, nothing, asking, faith. You see the verbal and the faith of the heart and the verbally asking God. Listen, when you go through difficult times, that's the time you might want to kneel on your knees and say, God, I trust you. I don't understand. i got more questions than answers. I've got, I've got trouble on every side. I've got persecution. I've got frustrations. I can't. I just feel like I'm going to blow up. That's when we need to say, God, I trust you. Believe and verbalize your faith. That's what Apostle Paul said he did. Number two, he made his focus Jesus. Did you see Jesus pop up on numbers of those pages? Looking unto Jesus. He authored and finished the race. And, and, and make your focus upon the Lord. I am so glad that, that I have Jesus. I'm glad that Jesus has me. I'm glad that in all, when it's all said and done, it's going to be Jesus and me for all eternity. So whatever problem I have today, if it is trouble on every side, I, I have Christ in my heart. The great song, What though wars may come with marching feet and beat of the drum, for I have Christ in my heart. What though nations rage as we approach the end of the age, for I have Christ in my heart. God is still on the throne, almighty God is he, and he cares for his own throughout eternity. So let come what may, whatever it is, I only say that I have Christ in my heart. I have Christ in my heart. But whatever's happened around me, I need to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, yes. Looking unto Jesus, the author. Amen. For me to live is... To die is gain. I am crucified with. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of. That's Christ. Who loved me and gave himself for me. When you have troubles, number one, believe God and verbalize your faith. And some of us, we might need to get quiet tonight and say, God, I trust you. I'm here because of you. I believe in you in my heart. You know I, I, I believe you. But verbalize it. <coughs> Say it. Man, I got a problem. I'm going I'm to trust you with that. Lord. I need to take that. Let your care and, and turn your care to prayer. 
Be careful for, but everything by prayer. Casting all your upon Him because He cares for you. Trust God and verbalize your faith. Number two, focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And by the way, what can we trust God for? We can trust Him for His purposes and His power. Boy, listen to Brother Arbo's testimony. That wouldn't have blessing. Drive up there and get a fancy, fancy house for 500 bucks a month. Good night in the morning. I feel sorry for the rest of the world after hearing that right there. That's a wonderful thing. But you know what? That's how good God can be. You know, he did. He trusted God's purposes, that God brought him to that place, and then God's power to help him. You know that he doesn't have a corner on that. He doesn't have a monopoly on the power of God. The provision of God, the same Jesus that he has, you have. And we can trust his purposes and his power. Notice what he says, if you would please, at verse number uh, 14. Knowing this, that he which raised up Jesus from the dead, raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. I want you to notice another thing real quickly. Not only believe God and verbalize your faith. Tell him you believe him. Focus on the person of Jesus. Realize that it's his purposes and his power that helps us. But notice, don't make your problem about you. You know, the quickest way to waste hardship and trials is to make it about you. Make it about me, how it affects me, my thinking, my feelings, my desires. This is, this is interesting. In this chapter, you'll see numerous references to we and us and our. And really, Paul was taking the brunt of a lot of these problems. But he, he didn't make it all about him. It was about me and us and not me, but us and we and our. Don't make it about you. Uh, trust and realize, you know, whatever problem I've been through, other people have gone through that similar problem. In the wee hours of the morning on, April, on August the 16th, we had found out that our 17-year-old son was involved in a car accident. He was riding with a precious family in our church that loved him as much as we loved him. But uh, they, he was a passenger in a seatbelt, and the driver was driving, and the man in the back was sitting there. They were having a good time. They were singing songs. And the lady got mad at her boyfriend. He was parked on the side and slammed the phone down and pulled out in front of their car. And they saw her and tried to go around her. And as they were going around her, she decided to do a U-turn simultaneously. And they hit the back of the car, went up on the hillside, it flipped over. And when it flipped over, it landed on the tires, and the driver got out uninjured. The man in the back got out uninjured. But our son, still stuck in a seat belt with stretch marks on it, something broke his rib, and one rib went into his right lung, and the other rib went right into his heart muscle. In a few moments after CPR and an ambulance pulled up, it wasn't even attending to that accident, just drove just right behind him and put the, 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 the electric shock on him and did all the CPR and did all he could do to revive him and then... Unfortunately, he began to hemorrhage out of his mouth and his ears and his, and his nose, and they realized he had internal bleeding somewhere. And he went home to be with the Lord. And about three hours later, we got a call from the, t the coroner. He said, Mr. Wilkerson, are you the, you the father of Tyler? I said, yes, sir. He said, we're sorry to tell you. After m multiple other things, he just said he sustained fatal injuries. 
Mr. Wilkerson, I'm so sorry. Your son died. And boy, I thought I, I, thought I was going to die myself. Linda was standing there in the hallway of her home at 2670 Magnolia Avenue, and she looked up into my eyes as I got the phone. She said, he's gone, isn't he, honey? We cried like little babies. But I tell you, one of the things that came to my mind really quickly is that we're not the only one to ever go through this. Even God knows what it's like to lose a son. He can help us. Other people have gone through this with a lot less help than we're going to help. We, we got like 1,100 cards in the first two weeks of, after his death of people just saying, we love you, we're praying for you. With unbelievable support. One of the first things that came to my mind is, you know what, other people have gone through this and God helped them and he can help us. And we're going to be in, a, in, a, in a, a camaraderie of other people who have lost. No doubt in this room there are precious people who have received similar news. I think about my friend, Brother Ed Bordell. His son didn't die suddenly. He died with an arduous battle with leukemia. The steroids had made him, he's just a boy, maybe 150 pounds at his heaviest, and now he's over 225, 30 pounds because he's bloated from the steroids, and he begins to bleed out his nose and his eyes and his ears, and he's got so much pain, and his dad's trying to hold him to find him a comfortable place, and, and his arms are about ready to fall off. He can't hardly hold him anymore up, and then he just goes in, into, into eternity. Well, I don't know about you. I, I think when I think about that, I thought, oh, boy, that was hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of, of bills and pressures and difficulties and hospital visits and chemotherapy and all the things. And that's how he transitioned his son. But God helped him. God knows how to help us. Don't make it about you. Make it about his purposes. His power. Once you notice the next thing real quickly, and we see the reasons. Trials come in seasons and they come for reasons. Nobody has a breakneck, terrible life from start to finish I know about. Matter of fact, most of our days are good days. Most, most nights we don't go to bed hungry, like much of the world does. Most of the time, even in this Frigid temperatures that you experience here, and we have a few like that, not near as much as you, bless your heart. <laughs> but, you know, we usually can find a warm place, even when it's 41 below zero. We can find a place where we can get warm for, for the time we have to be. God takes care of us, doesn't he? It's just sad, but many people make a case about, and they spend their whole life angry and frustrated about a few things done against them at the expense of all the things God's done for them. Well, they have maybe something didn't go right here, there, and everywhere, but most of their life's been a good life. And yet we focus on the negative. You know what? Trials come in seasons, and they come for reasons. Here's a couple reasons that God gives us for trials. Look, if you would please, at verse number 15. For all things are for whose sake? Your sake. They're for the sake of others. They benefit other people when we go through difficult times. That the abundant grace, that's grace is God's help, might be through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. 
You know, when you have a problem, you know what it does? It humbles us. And when you have a problem that you can't solve, you have to say, oh, no, I need help. And you know what that causes you to do? Ask. And you know what that does? That causes God to give his grace to the humble. And when we ask God for help, we humble ourselves. But what makes us pray is helplessness and, and faith. <laughs> now, some of us, we don't pray because we, we, we got this. I do this all the time. We don't pray about stuff because we think we're, we got it. We do this. I mean, I can do this with my eyes closed. But the truth matters, I need God all the time. But helplessness, I'll tell you when you pray, when your loved one's in the hospital in the ER tonight and they can't do a bloom and think about it and they don't know what the problem is, you, you know what you're going to do? You're going to pray. Because now it crossed the threshold of your abilities. You got helpless real quick. I get helpless. And we'll, we'll talk to God. And then we talk to him and we get humble. And then what does God do? He gives us his help. That's what grace is. It's God's supernatural help. Did you save yourself? No, for by grace. We're saved by grace. God's help. And he helps us. And then when he helps us, we're thankful. And we thank him. We give the thanks to him. Well, when you get help and you're a mess and someone helps you, oh, you're thankful. And then it brings glory to God. You know, that's one of the reasons why we're still breathing today is to bring good to others and give glory to God. Helping others and honoring God. If, if you're not doing that and I'm not doing that in my life, I'm really wasting the breath God gave me. I'm supposed to give others a good opinion of the God that loves us and does so much for us. See, we find there's a reason for trials. Trials have a reason. They humble us, and we ask God for help. He gives us his help, and then we become very grateful people, and then we bring glory to him. Then I want you to notice real quickly the next thought real quickly. And, and of course, we're just talking about how to handle problems, laboring together with God through problems. Trust God and verbalize your faith in him. Focus on the person of Jesus. Consider Jesus who endured such contradiction of sinners. Boy, if you say, Pastor, I'm having it so bad. Did you ever have it bad as Jesus had it? No, no, I don't think we can compare with that, right? I think we can make it. When you consider what Jesus, he did nothing but good and got nothing but bad. We do nothing but bad, get a few things bad, and we get mad. <laughs> Something's wrong with us. Got stinking thinking. Focus on Jesus. Focus on his purposes and his power. Focus on the purposes and the reasons so that we can get his grace and thanksgiving and glory to God. Look at the next verse, if you would, please. And I think we can see it real quickly in verse number 16. For this cause, for which cause we do what? We don't quit. For our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. You know, when you have problems, one thing you don't want to do is quit. The old, the old poet said, when things go wrong, as they sometimes will. When the road you're trudging seems all uphill. When the funds are low and the debts are high and you want to smile, but you have to sigh. Huh. When care presses you down a bit. Sir, ma'am, rest if you must, but, but don't quit. Success may be failure when it seems like it's so far. 
So stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things go wrong. You mustn't quit. He said, for this cause, we faint not. We don't quit. Because problems and trouble can put pressure on the internal, on the external, the outward man. But the inward man is renewed day by day. God's doing an inner work of grace. One thing all of us need is inner man strength. We need inner man strength to stay when we want to leave. We need man strength to study when we want to watch a, to- a football game. We need inner man strength to forgive when we want to hold a grudge. To give when we want to keep. Inner man strength to soul win. Inner man strength to disciple converts. You know, I think about listening to Brother Arbo's story, and I'm so glad Pastor Rice has having him do that. But you can hear the wonderful story about the the the. Um, the, the uh, nursing home. But how many years did he say he did that nursing home ministry? 22 years. When did they start giving him $500 a month? Year number 14. With nothing on his own gas, his own dime, his own time. 14 years times 52 weeks. Hundreds of times going to that nursing home. 48 funerals in one year. Doing what he had to do. I think that's called inner man strength, don't you think? Let's keep going. Well, that's sometimes all we can do is just put one step in front of the other. And keep going on. Though our outward man perish, our inward man is renewed day by day. And then he goes on to say that really all of our trials are temporary trials. The doctor said, I got cancer. If you're saved, it's temporary. Not to belittle that, but the truth of the matter is, uh, it's temporary. Every problem you have as a child of God is a temporary problem. Because one day God will wipe away all tears from her eyes. There will be no more night, no more sorrow, no more death, no more dying. Everything. He goes on to verse 17. Look at it with me. We'll conclude. For our light affliction was but for a what? Yeah. Just a short time. It worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, which are temporal, but the things which are not seen are what? Eternal. And dear friend, how we handle our problems has eternal impact and dividends. Impact on others and dividends for you. The Bible says, blessed is a man that endureth temptation or trials. Because when he is tried, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord giveth to everyone who loves him. Listen, God never wastes problems. He never wastes trials. He never wastes an attack. Look, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't Satan who thought about Job. That was, that was done by God. He said, you know, I think, I think Job can handle it. I'll help him. Have you considered my servant Job? I don't know about you, but when you have a problem, one thing you might want to think sometimes, you know, God entrusted me with this problem. He thinks I can do it. He, he's going to do it. And all this Job sin not, sin not nor charge God how? Like an idiot. No, he, did, he didn't do that. He, didn't, he, 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 he exercised wisdom. Faith in God. 
and we're still talking about Job. And if you don't know your Bible, Job. <laughs> we're still talking about him for all that God used him to do. And when you have a bad day, you can say, well, not as bad as Job. He trusted the Lord. God used him. And he has eternal impact on our own life today, many hundreds of years later. Hey, has trouble been your constant companion? Believe God. And tell him, I trust you, Lord. I don't understand. I got more questions than answers, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to take my care and make it prayer. I'm going to cast all my care upon you. Know you'll help me. I'm going to focus on Jesus. I'm going to trust your providence and your presence and, and your purposes and your power. I'm going to ask you for help. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep on doing what God wants me to do because my problems are temporary and they have an eternal impact. Let's pray together. Could you stand with me? If God has spoken to your day and looking forward to the time, you've got a wonderful spirit here in Canada that I think is just uh, very unique and just a great encouragement to me and to my wife, Linda, and thank you for taking the time and effort to be here today. Wasn't that a good song that I mentioned that I love him? And boy, what a great, a great truth that is. And thank you very much, Brother Rice and the family for doing that together. Back in... Uh, in uh, 2000, I was sitting at my breakfast uh, counter, and I had already preached my eighth and ninth message of my life in preparation uh, to be a candidate for a pastor. And uh, I mentioned to you, I'd preached seven times in my life in a public church service before I became a pastor or became candidate there. And I just finished that. I preached two messages. I went home, and May the 7th, I was sitting on a Sunday night and uh, at a little counter there in our house in, in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Linda was across the counter from me. The phone rang, and it was our deacon of our church, at First Baptist Church of Long Beach, and he says, Pastor Wilk or Brother Wilkerson, our church voted tonight to ask you to be our next pastor, and um, would you please say yes? And, um, and they had been 13 months without a pastor. It was a difficult situation, lots of challenges and, and uh, hardships had taken place in that time. And, uh, but uh, I, I knew that the Lord wanted me. I was scared to death, but I knew the Lord wanted me to do it. And I said, uh, I said yes, I believe God will let us do that. So I need to finish the school year out, and so I won't be able to probably come until June, about a month from now. And I did arrive June the 9th, so it was May the 7th. I remember hanging up the phone and, and then thinking, and I hung up the phone, Linda says, I can't be a pastor's wife. <laughs> you know, I said, just, just be my wife. It's okay, honey. You can just be my wife. And I can't be a pastor either, so I'm just going to be your husband. <laughs> so, but I remember her being like, oh, I can't believe this is happening to us. I said, I know. I don't know either. You know, it's, it's crazy. But anyway, uh, uh, then I thought to myself, well, what do pastors do? You know, what they? I mean, I've had great pastors, but uh, I was just terrified. I remember going to Bible college, and, and I knew I had, I had surrendered to serve the Lord. And when I was at a youth conference, I was 13 years old. And five years later, I ended up in the registration line of Hiles Anderson College and going through the line there. And I heard people asking the, the people in front of me, what is your major? What is your major? They kept asking the people there. 
And all I had was $675 to hand to somebody. I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't read the catalog. So I didn't know what I was supposed to major in. So I kind of stepped back and let other people go in front of me. I said, what is your major? And they said, well, he goes, I'm going to, I got pastoral theology is my major. I said, what does that mean? He said, pastoral theology, that means, man, I got to preach, brother. I got to preach or I'll die. And I, I thought to myself, I think I'd rather die than preach. <laughs> I don't know. I love preaching. I just don't want to do any of it. I just thought, man, where, do, where, does, the, where does a pastor get three messages a week and funerals and chapel messages? And, oh, my goodness, I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine it. And uh, I, I let him go. He went ahead and told her, pastoral theology is my major. And I said, okay, that's good. And the next person, I said, what's your major? He goes, you know, I really don't know what I'm supposed to do. He goes, I know I'm supposed to serve the Lord. And, but Brother Hiles said, if you don't know what to do, just take secondary ed. Because if you go into education, you can transition to something else. And people respect teachers. And you'll learn how to communicate. But in my little 18-year-old mind, I thought, good night in the morning. I just finished 12 years of school. I'm signed up for four more. I'm not sure I want to go back to school when I finish uh, my degree. And so I thought, ah, I don't know. And he went ahead and told his. Then I, I saw a guy, and he actually had a catalog. And he said, uh, I said, what, what is your major, sir? And he said, well, I'm. I, don't, I just want to help my pastor. He said, I love my pastor. I want to go back and help my pastor. So I'm going to take a pastoral assistant program and just to help my pastor. And I said, well, that sounds good. He goes, yeah, and if you take this, you don't have to take Greek. You can just take, uh, you don't have to take Greek. I said, that's another good reason to help your pastor right there. Take that thing. And so, and, uh, so I thought, you know, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take that pastoral assistant major and go help a pastor somewhere. And I went to the table, and I remember very vividly, uh, I said, yeah, I'll take that pastoral assistant major is what I'm thinking of there, you know. And, and the lady said, well, what's your concentration? I said, what? <laughs> and she said, you got to pick a minor. you got to pick a, a concentration. Was it going to be education, or is it going to be youth or music? If you pick pastoral assistant, you got to pick one of, those, one of those three. And I heard about the secondary ed, so I said, okay, I'll take the education major, that, uh, that concentration that made me a school teacher for 11 years after I finished graduating from college. So I started teaching school. But I love pastors, and I still do. I have a great admiration for pastors. And, and since I was a little kid, my dad pastored a church from the time I was four until I was about seven years old. And, and then he got overwhelmed with the pressures and challenges and the difficulties of, of that, that entailed with, with overseeing a flock for God and he just quit. He, he resigned. I probably heard him say a hundred times. If I heard him say it one time, I heard him say a hundred times. I wish I wouldn't have resigned. I wish I wouldn't have resigned. I wish I would have stayed. I wish I would have continued. And I remember him saying that many times. It kind of put us on a little bit of a, a moving, just moving and trying to find our, uh, my dad's niche in the Lord's work. And he loved us so much. He loved the Lord, but just uh, never really got over quitting. Uh, and stepping down from his responsibilities. And boy, I don't think you'll ever get over that. If God called you to do something, you want to just stay at it. Ask God for help and ask God for strength. And, and don't doubt in the night what God showed you in the light. But uh, I remember hanging up that phone on May the 7th where, where uh, I thought, man, i got to figure out what I'm supposed to do if I'm going to be a pastor. And uh, I'd already, I, after I was chosen to be a pastor, I, I was ordained to the ministry, and, and uh, that was a helpful time. But I remember looking at uh, and thinking, you know what, there's three pastoral epistles 
1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And so if those are written specifically to pastors, then I think I'm going to get familiar with them. And so I started reading those three books of the Bible every week. It wasn't very hard. It's, you know, six chapters in 1 Timothy, four chapters in 2 Timothy, and three chapters in Titus. But those are written there. It's unique, and Paul wrote 13 books of our Bible. Those are the only three where his greeting is grace, mercy, and truth. Uh, peace, excuse me, grace, mercy, and peace. The other ones are just grace and peace. The, the pastoral epistles, he includes the, the attribute of mercy as he talks to Timothy and Titus. I thought that was interesting. And I think he has showed the old man what is good and what the Lord doth require thee, but to, to do justly and to love mercy. Uh, I think a pastor needs to have a measure of mercy and, and grace and carefulness as he cares for people. And I thought that was kind of interesting as I read through that. And then I begin to read through, I, I begin to see several themes in each of those, of those books. And uh, Titus, he shows you what's right, what's not right, and then to continue in those things in chapter 3. Uh, Second Timothy is a challenging book. And of course, Second Timothy was written when uh, Paul is in the Mamertine prison. And he's now it's not an easy time. When he wrote 1 Timothy, probably he was in house arrest. He was probably in that two years of rest God gave him where he didn't have any persecution, he didn't have any liberty, he couldn't go out, but he could receive friends. And he wasn't living in a jail cell, he was living in a rented home. And Dr. Luke and Aristarchus probably were ministering to him. And he got visited from Epaphroditus there in, in Philippi and from other folks and met Philemon and and uh, excuse me, not my flame, but Onesimus and things of that nature during that time. But that two years, he, he wrote the book of Colossians and Philippians and Ephesians. And he talked about the, he had the Roman soldier that would sit in his house. Yeah, he wasn't in the jail cell, but the Roman soldier would sit there. It's no wonder he could write Ephesians chapter 6 and say, you know, put on the whole armor of God, you know, and the shield of faith. He saw that guy leaning up against the wall every day and the sword of the spirit and the helmet. He could take that helmet off and set it down there and see his feet and see his breastplate and saw that Roman soldier as he would come in and switch shifts with the next guy. So he, was, he had a really living illustration of a man there. But, um, but now in, in 2 Timothy, he's, in house, he's not in house arrest. He's in, he's in jail for the last time. He won't see the light of day. He will be executed in short order. And he tells Timothy, he goes, look, I got to challenge you, man. Number one, I'll challenge you personally. He referenced his mother and his grandmother, his ordination, and told him to neglect not the gift, stir up the gift that's in you, and don't be afraid and ashamed of my chain. And he references Onesiphorus and, and in chapter 1. Chapter 2, he gives him a practical challenge. He tells him, look, I, I want you to be strong like a soldier, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Take the things I've taught you and pass them on to other faithful people. Be strong in the grace like a good son would be, and be a, a disciplined athlete. No man striveth for mastery unless he strives lawfully. Be disciplined. And then decide to play by the rules of life that God's laid down for you. Uh, be, be, be follow the rules. And goes on to be a farmer. He said, you know, um, be, be faithful and then be fruitful. And be willing to suffer and go through difficult times. It's okay. That, that's part of the journey. It's not going to be a walk in the park. And it won't be done on spare time and pocket change. Then he says, be a student. Study to show yourself 
approved unto God. The workman need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word. He just practically challenged. He said, now, be a vessel. In a, in a great house, there are vessels of gold and silver and wood and of earth. It doesn't really matter what vessel you are, but what does matter is that you're purged and clean and ready to be used when God wants to use you. Sanctified, clean, and set apart. Um, it's better to drink out of a clean clay cup than in a nasty golden cup. It doesn't really, what matters is it be cleaned and purged and ready to be used. And then he tells him to be a good servant. And the servant of God must not strive, but be gentle with all men, apt to teach, patient. In meekness, working and instructing people that oppose themselves. If God peradventure would give them repentance, the knowledge of the truth, that they can recover themselves. You're not going to recover anyone, Timothy. They're going to have to do the final taking the choke chain off of their, after their neck. Out of devil who takes them captive as will. You can't, but you can work with them. And work with them without strife. Some people, strife is their life. <laughs> they, they, they can't find a, a battle they don't want to get involved with. They want to fight about everything. So that's not normal for a servant of Christ. He's got to be patient and meek and working with people. And then uh, he goes on to give them a perilous day challenge. He lists 18 selfish sins of society. Heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, love, more than lovers of God and all that. And then he said those selfish sins lead to sexual sins. That, that you know, laden, getting involved with silly women laden with sins and immoral sins and then learning sins searching sins ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth and they'll be stopped but until that time you've got to be a good testimony for the Lord you've got to endure hardness and continue in the things which you've heard and been assured of and then make sure that you make much of the Bible because all scripture is given inspiration of, pro uh, of God is profitable and then chapter 4 he gives him this parting challenge where he reminds him to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And, and then he says, you know, the time of my departure is at hand. I'm getting ready to, to, to meet Jesus in just a few short times, but come quickly. Get over here. It's interesting. In first Timothy, he says, I, have bought, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. <laughs> and here he says, Leave Ephesus and come here now <laughs> and bring my coat and bring the Bible and bring the other reading materials. When you come, and make sure you come before winter. Hurry up. Get over here. Bring John Mark. Make sure you get him to come. and Bring him too. I want him to know that he's a good young man and God's going to use him. And I'm proud of him and I'm happy with him. And then he, re he references Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Even at the end of his life, he had disappointing um, protégés that didn't stay faithful to the Lord and hurt him. And he reminded himself that, and Titus is here, and only Luke is with me. I'm sure Luke is probably writing the letter and said, thanks a lot, Paul. Only Luke, you know, you know. Uh, and only Luke's here, and he said, he said, I want you to come, Timothy. We don't know if Timothy ever made it. We know he got the letter, and God put it in the Bible. Aren't you glad he put that in the Bible for us? But First Timothy is unique in that it, um, it, uh, God tells us exactly why Paul gave it to, to Timothy. Let's look at chapter 3 in verse number 15, if we can. We'll pick up at chapter 3, verse number 15. We've got a couple books and a, and a New Testament, so New Testament to give away. In just a few moments, I'll ask some questions, and uh, maybe you can uh, 
you can uh, take home one of those books. I've got a few other things out there I want to try to give away while I'm here. I'm so glad to be with you, and uh, thank you for your heart to be here uh, today. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Who can read verse 14 for me? Who's got that ready to go? Anybody? All right, Brother Sheldon, go ahead. Okay, now let's read verse 15. Everybody read it together, would you please? That thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of a living God. Verse 16 is about Jesus. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. That's Jesus. Justified in the spirit. That's Jesus. Seen of angels. That's Jesus. Priesthood of the Gentiles. That's how you and I got saved. Believed unto the world and received up into glory. That's Jesus. So he says here, Timothy, I don't, I'm in jail right now, and I'm not sure when I'm going to get out. So if it takes me a while to get to you, if I tarry long, I want you to know in the meantime how to behave yourself as a servant of Christ, as a leader in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So 1 Timothy is written so that Timothy will know how to behave himself as a leader for God in the house of God. Because the church of God is the pillar and ground of the truth. We alluded to that a little bit last night. Uh, everyone who gets saved gets saved because someone gives them the word of God and faith is fostered. The Holy Spirit of God brings conviction of sin, of righteousness and judgment and a local church kept the truth and propagated the truth. I don't know that you'll find anyone who hasn't have indirectly or indirectly get saved without a local church influence. It's just the way God wired it. And he said that local church is a place where the pillar, it's the pillar and the and this it's the pillar of truth. And it's the church of a living God. And Timothy, you have to behave yourself appropriately and wisely in this role. And so as I looked at that years ago and still look at it today and still try to practice it, I don't understand everything about 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus I need to understand. But the Lord began to, to work in my heart. I was asked to teach a pastorology class, which is teaching on pastoring people. And, and so I, I kind, of doubt, uh, kind of spent more time studying 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. And I remember sitting uh, when I was asked to leave uh, Long Beach, California and go to First Baptist Church and they have a, a college there. And I remember sitting on the platform in my early days at uh, Hiles Anderson College looking to the faces of, of uh, 400 young people. And, and I'm thinking, what do they need to learn? What is it if Jesus were here, if Apostle Paul was leading this college, knowing the mind of God, he, had, he said he had the mind of Christ. What would he want them to learn? And the Lord draw, drew me back to this study. And it's the First Timothy principles. And I try to teach it to the students at the college. I, I, I try to practice it myself. But each of the six chapters have a, um, have a, uh, a theme, in my opinion. You may have a different opinion than mine. And opinions are kind of like armpits. We all have them. Some of them stink. <laughs> and, uh, but... Uh, uh, but I, I may be wrong, and I've been wrong so many times, I question myself often. But I think each of those chapters kind of have a theme that specifically talks to Timothy in that. Now, the, the chapters are not inspired, but I'm glad God 
let somebody put them in chapters. It'd be kind of hard to follow the Bible if you just had a big general letter. But I think each of them kind of have a theme, and, and I've identified some things I think that Paul is telling Timothy. And each of them are, are, are silos that you and I as servants of Christ will negotiate every day. I'll give them to you generally, and then we'll talk specifically about them. Chapter 1, the first, the first theme is keeping your doctrine sound. Keeping your doctrine sound. The word sound is the word uh, that stands for hygiene, clean, unpolluted, without any kind of air, just keeping it clean. How many appreciate pure things? Don't you love imitation syrup? You know, if you could have Coke or, or Pepsi or Sam's Choice or Shasta, which would you rather have? You'd rather have the real thing. That's what you'd rather have. You'd rather have something that's genuine, that's that. You know, and I don't know about you, we want pure honey. <laughs> you like to have things that are pure. Well, you said keep the doctrine pure, chapter 1. Chapter 2 is making prayer and your walk with God a priority. Making prayer a priority. That's a challenge. We'll come back to that in a minute. But it's easier for me to preach 45 minutes than to pray for five of those minutes. It's easier for me to work for 8, 10, 12 hours a day than it is to pray for one of those hours. We're, we're used to coming together and hearing someone talk to us and thinking about, oh, this will help me in my church and, and this will help me in my ministry or I can learn this. And, and that's good and we need to do that. But many are a church service. And, and when Jesus said, my house should be called a house of preaching. Do you remember that verse? <laughs> said, my house should be called a house of prayer. See, the Bible majors on prayer. 148 times in the Bible you'll find preaching of proclaiming God's word. 578 to 80 times you'll find prayer emphasized in the Bible. So definitely God is interested in prayer. And before there was ever a Bible, people could walk with God. How did they do that? In prayer. Abraham went out to the place where he stood before the Lord. And when uh, we work, we work. When we pray, God starts working. And it's oftentimes it's why we don't have the fruitfulness. Not always. Sometimes you can't see everything the way that, the way that God sees it. But boy, prayer is making prayer a first thing, a priority. Chapter 3 has to do with... Um, with spiritual reproduction. It's where you find uh, the, the qualifications of pastors and, and those who will help their pastor. And uh, I don't think Paul is telling Timothy so he would know what kind of man he's supposed to be, but so he would know what kind of men would become good pastors and those would help their pastors and ladies who would help them. And one thing they all have in common, a pastor, everyone in here who's a pastor or helping your pastor, you have, you have two things in common. Someone got the gospel to you. And someone nurtured you to some level of spiritual maturity. Someone cared about you after you got saved. And it's from those who are saved and discipled that God gets his leaders and those who will help his leaders. And there's no success without successors. We've got, we've got to continually to win and disciple people. And we'll talk about that maybe in chapter 3. Chapter 4 is where Paul will tell him that the Spirit speaketh expressly that some will not stay faithful for a lifetime. 
Some will depart from the faith. That's one of the biggest gut punches of, of serving the Lord is watching people take the exits off the high road of holiness. And they used to be faithful, but they're not anymore. They used, to, they used to do this, but now they changed. That's difficult. And Paul tells them, hey, get used to it. The Spirit's very obviously telling you that's going to happen. Not all, not most, but some will depart from the faith. And he tells them the fourfold digression of that. And then he, he says, look, but don't let anyone despise your youth, but be thou an example. Why? Because our sermons whisper, but our life shouts. And if people don't trust you, they won't trust what you say in the pulpit. If they don't trust your life, they don't really care what you have to say. Because uh, really our, 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 our life is a lot louder than our sermons. And uh, people are watching you all the time. And what they do need is a good example. And uh, chapter 4 is about being a godly example. Chapter 5 revolves around how you treat people, relationships and responsibilities. The whole chapter, from the beginning, he talks about the older men like your dad, the older men like the older women like your mom, and the younger men like your brothers, the younger ladies like your, your sisters with all purity. I mean, that's everybody in the church. <laughs> you have the older men, the older ladies, younger men, younger ladies, that's everybody. He said, you gotta treat them in familiar relationships like you would your own dad and mom. Like your own brother and sister. By the way, if you're lousy in the home life, you'll be lousy in the leadership life of ministry. If you're not a good son to your dad, your mom, you'll probably struggle with the older folks in your church. If you're not a good brother to your siblings, you'll probably have some inter interpersonal problems. How do you treat the widows? How do you train the ladies who will be widows? What's the lady's role in the church? What's the relationship responsibilities? How about the younger widows? How about the pastors and the leaders? That's where we find in context, honor, give double honor to those men and, and pastors who labor in word and doctrine. And, uh, and don't bring accusations unless it's founded with two or three people. If one person comes up to you with an accusation against your pastor, they're, they're missing somebody. And you need to stop them and say, hold the phone, Joan. There's not enough of us to talk about pastor. We need two or three witnesses to talk about that. If you think it's that serious, then let's stop and let's go get some folks who can do something about it. And uh, that'll stop a lot, of, a lot of accusations. But if an accusation is true, those that sin must be accountable. Pastors, if they sin, they've got to, they've got to if they did it, they've got to admit it. They've got to be confronted. Uh, that others may also fear. And then he talks a little bit about the, uh, the responsibility of of, uh, of, of nurturing and, and uh, 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 of ordaining other men. Don't lay hands on any man suddenly. And goes on to talk about that some men's sins, you can tell by listening to them talk a few minutes, that, you know, these guy, this guy's a bad dude. He, he's not sincere. There's some issues there. I know he says God's called him, but, but he's, got some, he's got some homework he's to get worked on first. And then others' men, their sin follows after. It's several years later before... They reveal that they're not, they're not, uh, they've, they've gone through some problems that they, they, they go elsewhere, which means we have to constantly evaluate relationships. And then chapter six is about financial management. From the very beginning to the end, it speaks about money and the management of money, how to get money by working diligently, associating carefully, 
um, living contentedly and giving aggressively and generously. So those are the six chapters and those are the six themes. But let's just talk real quickly about those, if we can, please. Look at chapter 1. What is chapter 1's theme? Sound doctrine. Because doctrine determines destiny. The to- doctrine determines your decisions. What you believe determines what decisions you'll make. If you believe that Tylenol causes cancer, okay, uh, when, you're, when you have a headache and someone hands you a Tylenol, you're, are you trying to kill me? No, you won't even take it because your doctrine will make your decision. I'll live with a headache. If, 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 you, if you believe strongly in something, it will make your decisions for you. It will show your dedication to something. What you believe determines your dedication. It determines your direction. If you believe that the King James Bible is preserved, inspired Word of God, that, that determines what you, you, how you feel about somebody else coming in with a different version. That means it's going to set the direction for your church. Whatever you believe about something is going to determine your direction and your destiny. If you're off a little bit when you set sail from one port to another port, you're off a little bit. The farther you go down the, down the, across the ocean of life, the farther off you become from your destiny. So you want to keep your doctrine sound. And that was the first thing he told Timothy. Timothy, you've got to keep doctrinal purity or you're going to be a shipwreck. Look at the vast pastor scripture. We can go to chapter 1 if we can. Pastor, I want to make sure I know what time I'm supposed to stop. Is it, is it 1035? or <laughs> 1045. Okay, all right, here we go. Let's go quick if we can, please. 1 Timothy chapter number 1. Notice, if you would, please, after his greeting, verse number 3. Who can read verse 3 for me? Who, who has it there? Can read that for us. Okay, right here, Brother Dan. Okay, so you can see here's the whole purpose that Paul said, I want you to stay at Ephesus, and I need you to stay there. He was young. He did not want to be separated from the Apostle Paul. I'm convinced he liked to be the second man. He was the more timid of the two uh, protégés that our God gave. I think Titus was a little more bull in the china closet. They both had Greek fathers, uh, but, but Titus, you stay, at, you stay at Crete where they're all liars and slow bellies and everybody, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's where you were supposed to be over there. And he said, you stay, you stay there and you're doing good, Titus. That's right. When he had to collect money from the, from the faith promise commitment of, first, of, 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 of the church at Corinth, a bunch of hardheads, he said, I'm sending T- Titus over there. Titus, will, he'll get it together. I know that. Uh, you know Titus. He started this thing. Yeah, yeah, he's coming to town. Get ready for him, okay? <laughs> Timothy was not that way. Timothy, you can hear, I'm, I'm mindful of thy tears. Neglect not the gift. Come on, Timothy. Stir up that gift that was given to you. I think he probably was like, do I have to stay here? You're going to stay there. Yes. I besought thee to abide still there at Ephesus. And your job is not an easy one. It's to be a watchdog for doctrine. You besought thee to stay, to buy, and, and you stay there and you keep the doctrine sound. Keep it clean. There's going to be some guys and there's some wolves coming in. By the way, thank God for the church at Ephesus. 
30 years after Paul went home to be with the Lord, the church of Ephesus shows up in the revelation of Jesus Christ. It was still going. Now, they had left their first love, but they had doctrinal purity. They, they, were, they were strong in that, in that area. They had knew to rebuke the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. They knew to keep that right. And, you know, a lot of it is because somebody watched the doctrinal purity. He says here that uh, I want you to stay there for that reason. Our time will not allow us to go through. You can look at it later. I think you'll find that same vein coming through there. Notice what he says, if you would please, at verse number, um, uh, verse number 6. Would you mind looking there? He says, from, from which some having what? Swerved. Swerved. Underline that word if you're interested in learning things in the Bible. Maybe underline that have turned aside to vain jangling. They've left sound doctrine, and they have what? Swerved. What happens if you got a two-lane road and a guy swerves into your lane? One person makes a decision to swerve. One person makes a decision to, to go a little bit off, to listen to a podcast someplace or watch too many guys YouTube. One person decides to swerve and say, you know, I think I'm going to go a little this way. He said, some have swerved, and they have left sound doctrine and gone off to a bunch of stories or bought into one person's ideas, and, and they swerve. You know, a swerve always precedes a shipwreck, but there's greater collateral damage in a shipwreck. One person makes a chance to swerve, but the, what happens in a shipwreck, many people are affected. There's many churches that the pastor has made a decision to swerve. And then the church has the collateral damage of the shipwreck. Many dads got a bitterness in their hearts. And, ah, I don't appreciate that, Pastor. We're going to go somewhere else. I think we just need a little bit more loosey-goosey. And they make a swerve, and the kids and the grandkids, they experience the shipwreck. A lady gets upset with something that happens in the nursery or something that didn't happen good in this thing and that thing. And, and, and that now they, they, they take a swerve. And the long-lasting impact is just huge. Paul references them. He says, remember Alexander and Hymenius? They have caused many to shipwreck. Look, if you would please, if you can see it in uh, chapter 1, verse number 18, I charge and commit to thee, son Timothy, According to the prophecy that went on before thee, he said, listen, I told you this before. You know that doctrinal purity is important, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. By the way, it's not for the weak of heart to keep doctrinal purity. There's, it's just there's part of me that just, I don't, I don't want to stand out. I want to blend in. I don't want to fight. He said, but you're going to have to war a good warfare, especially in the area of doctrinal purity. Notice verse number 19. Read it with me, would you please? Holding faith and having... You see a swerve. I've kind of, I've underlined swerve. I've drawn a line to shipwreck in my Bible because a swerve precedes a shipwreck. And it's never more true than in doctrinal error. And he goes on, verse number 20, of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered into Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And boy, when you grab the greasy pole of doctrinal questions, doting questions, when you, when you, when you, get, you get bored with the basics and you want to get off and find some other doctrine, 
There's just no stopping on that greasy pole. You hang on to it, and you're going to slide down like a fireman coming from the second floor until you hit the bottom, until there is no, no, no more, until, until there's no, nothing else to hold on to. And you'll go into blasphemy. And chapter 1, keep the doctrine pure. Keep it sound. Don't swerve. Uh, really pray your way through doctrinal purity. Look at chapter 2, if you would, please. And chapter 2 is, um, is talking about making prayer a priority. Chapter 1, keep your doctrine. Help me out real quickly. Chapter 1, keep your doctrine pure or sound. Okay, because doctrine determines destiny. Yeah, it determines your decisions, your direction, your dedication, your destiny. It determines your destiny. Keep it right. And be careful because you start listening to wrong things, and boy, there's, we can have some issues going on there. It's, it's happened to me. It's happened to anybody. There's plenty of jumping off places where you can get off on doctrinal error. I'm convinced. I hate it when I find someone is morally messed up. But you know, I think more people have been hurt by doctrinal errors than they have by immoral errors. And oftentimes, doctrinal errors lead to immoral errors. I just think it's something we ought to be careful about. Make sure, and by the way, people say, well, we believe the Bible, we just practice a lot different. And I'm telling you, doctrine determines your, 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 your dedication. <laughs> determines what you, how you live. It, it's, not, it's not just like, oh, yeah, oh, we believe doctrinally, just what the Bible says. It also dictates actions, entertainment, association. Now, I'm not better than anybody else, and, and I don't know anyone on here thinks they're better than somebody else, but... But when you believe right, you start living right. You elevate things that need to be elevated because our God is a holy God. But chapter 2 speaks about making prayer a priority. We can see it in the first verse. Would you read it with me if you would, please? Everyone together, chapter 2, verse 1. Ready? I exhort, therefore, that... He said, I exhort, I challenge you, I, I'm, I'm uh, encouraging you, Timothy, that, that first of all, now what does first of all mean? You might want to say the same thing again, right? It means make this a priority. That supplications, that's pressing known need. If you're ever counseling with someone and you're, they're telling you stuff and you're trying to think, what in the world am I supposed to tell him? You know what you're doing at that moment? Supplicating. <laughs> you're saying, God, help me. God, help me. What am I going to tell them? Where in the scriptures can I go? How can I help this couple? How can I help this situation? You're supplicating because you have now a known pressing need. In a few moments when they stop talking, you're supposed to say something. And you need the help of God. You need wisdom right now. When you're looking into the eye of your son or daughter and you're trying to, you're trying to discipline them and you think they're demon-possessed at the moment and they're, they're like they're, they're holding their ground and they're not listening and you're thinking, no, no, this is not my child. This, come on now. What am I supposed to do with them? They won't stop. They're just not, ba you know what you need? You got supplication going on right there. You know, when, the, when you get a bill and, and you know that you don't have the funds to pay that bill, you have a, a matter of supplication. You have a pressing known need. 
prayers. Those are general petitions. Those are general talks with the Lord. Those are, those are things that are just general talks, general petitions. Like if I, if I don't know what to pray for specific about a missionary, we, have, we put up 10 missionaries' pictures every service on a screen like this, and we just rotate them in the prayer time. Because, um, I, but I don't oftentimes, sometimes I'll tell the people, that, well, these folks are, they just, they need a building. Let's pray for a building. That's a, that's a matter of supplication. If I don't know anything about them, we're just going to pray for them. We're going to give general petitions. Lord, help their family and bless them as they minister. Give them wisdom. Give them key people to get saved. Give them opportunities and specialness of moments, whatever. That's the general petition. Intercession is when we intercede for someone else. We're, we're on behalf of someone. You can never be more Christ-like than when you intercede for someone. Because he ever liveth making intercession for us. So praying for others and then giving of thanks. I think all of us are thankful. How many are thankful for a cup of coffee this morning? Yeah, I was trying to get a donut. Miss Jamie wouldn't let me. She's guarding the box and eating all of them like, like it was awful. It was just teasing. But the truth is, I'm glad for, for some. But, you know, the, the problem is we're, we're thankful. How many glad you got here safely? Okay, so we're all thankful, but giving the thanks is on another level. That's not, that's not just being thankful. That's, that's sharing my gratitude to God in everything. Give thanks, because this is the will of God. Not just be thankful, but to give the thanks. That's what we do in prayer. We express our gratitude to God. And every, every prayer, all prayer, needs to be packed with praise uh, for it to be effective. So the whole chapter is about prayer. Chapter 2 is about prayer. He said, I want you to pray for kings and for all in authority that you and I can live. Because no one can complicate our Christianity quite like President Trudeau can do that, right? <laughs> President Biden on our side of the border. No one can complicate your ability to live out your Christian life quite like the DFS or the, the Department of Children's Services. They can really complicate you from living out your Christian faith. He said, you better pray for them. Pray for, your, pray for your government leaders. When you drive by a police car, you ought to pray for them. When you drive by City Hall, you might want to pray for your mayor. Pray for the city councilman. Pray for kings and for anyone who's in authority because, because the only way you can live out your Christian life with peace uh, is, is if they behave themselves. And if they don't behave themselves, it's going to get real close to home. So make sure you pray for kings. And if they're the reason why people can't hear the gospel, there's a real strong reason why the people of North Korea don't, can't hear the gospel quite as much as we can. You know what his name is? Mr. Ong. Yeah, it's him. There's a reason why the people of China are being arrested and tortured and, and isolated from their families trying to stifle Christianity. That's why they just can't walk up to everyone. I've been to Chinese homes in China and, and watched them come into an apartment one after the other and ring the doorbell and go up to the 15th floor and one by one come in and then sing quiet songs so the neighbor doesn't get too excited and take prayer requests and, and, and have their living room turn into the auditorium and their, their bedrooms into Sunday school classes and and nurseries and their, 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 their kitchens into fellowship halls and their, their bathroom into the into public restroom. And their bathtub becomes the baptistry where they take a little video camera and show it to everybody else in the front room from what's happening in the bathroom. 
when their new converts get baptized. There's a reason why it's a little more complicated to have a church in China than it is in Canada or America. So pray for kings. Because the number one reason God asks us to pray is so all men would come to the knowledge of the truth. Praying for the lost to be saved is the crux of this passage. Prayer changes things. It changes me. Now, I'm not exactly sure why my prayers get anyone saved, but here's what I do know. When I pray for the lost, I'm more sensitive to the lost. When I pray, God, give me someone today that I can witness to, then I, I, it's hard for me to keep my track in my pocket when I meet somebody because I've been praying for that opportunity. So many missed opportunities because we just have not prayed the price. Prayer. Even in our church services, prayer is such a, a missing part sometimes. We, we pray to open the service. We pray before the offering. We pray at the end. And it's, I guess if you put all a prayer of a, of a, of a church service many times, it's, it's less than four or five minutes, maybe even two or three minutes of a church service. And it's supposed to be a house of prayer. But we'll sing songs. We'll fellowship. We'll preach. And we, we pray for three minutes and we walk out and say, boy, we had church today. Boy, God met with us. But maybe not in the same way that God likes it. I know after COVID, I, I, I felt like that we needed to do something. If God could redesign our service after looking at a camera for several weeks and, and trying to do that, I thought, you know, Lord, when we come back together, is there anything you'd like different in our church service? And I felt like the Lord said, John, why don't you make prayer a priority? Why don't you do a little more praying? And so that's what I did. So Sunday morning, if you come to First Baptist Church of Hammond, we stopped seven to ten minutes to pray. Close our eyes and bow our heads. And sometimes the music plays. Sometimes the music doesn't play. Sometimes we have four or five people pray in the auditorium. Sometimes I'll talk them through a prayer and say, let's, 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 just, let's just think about this. Why, why not right now we just give something we can praise God for? And I'll shut my mouth for a little while and people will be praying individually. Sometimes we pray by ourselves. Sometimes we pray with other people. Sunday night we try to do the same thing Wednesday night. And I'm not saying we, we don't have it together. I, I, we, I don't think we do, do what we ought to do. We're not most pleasing to the Lord all the way. But I felt like to myself, and boy, when I first started doing that, if we prayed three minutes, people are going, wow. Ooh, how long is this going to go? Three minutes sound like 25 minutes to people. The quietness. And, you know, you, you pray and all of a sudden you, 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 you've prayed three minutes and people are now talking to each other. They're done. They're done. And I say, man, that's it. But they grow in that. And it's awkward for them. They're not used to it. You know, because really prayer is a private discipline. And prayer has to be learned. You don't do prayer because it's just natural. Now, crying is natural. Any baby can cry out to the Lord. But prayer is something even the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And it's interesting. And you'll find that passage of Scripture in Luke. The Bible tells us that when Jesus prayed, it was Jesus praying out loud when he prayed. One of his disciples said to them, Lord, Teach us to pray. How many disciples did he have? Twelve. How many asked for the information to pass on to us? One. 
I submit to you probably about one in ten Christians are interested in prayer, even in a nominal way. I would say probably one in ten pastors, one in twelve, have really any interest in personal prayer and corporate prayer. Little prayer, little power. More prayer, more power. But he's telling him, Timothy, keep your doctrine sound. Make prayer and your walk with God a priority. And like priest, like people. Uh, you're the shepherd. You're the under-shepherd. And what you value, people will begin to value. If you don't think it's important, they won't think it's important. We have to work with them and do that. Then chapter 3, we'll pick up on, the, on our lesson tomorrow. But it's on spiritual reproduction. And basically that is winning and discipling people. Winning and discipling people. Because it is in, in a man's, uh, in, in the pastoral responsibility to lead a church to win the lost and disciple the saved. None of it is going to be done easily. It's not easy to have a baby. It's even harder to raise the baby. But both of them are where adults grow up. That this is where we have to, we have to spend time investing in it. Sometimes I feel like there's not too many church problems that couldn't be solved with about 15 hours a week of concentrated effort to win and disciple people. And, and some of you don't have that. Some of you are bivocational and you don't even have that time. But maybe you could give three, four, five, six hours of just winning people to Christ. It means we have to pay, lay aside some hobbies. We have to lay aside some priorities. We have to do some, okay, Lord, Give me someone I can talk to about Christ. And then let me follow up one-on-one, -on -one, spending time with people. There's no, I don't think there's very good reasons why most pastors could not disciple three and four people a week. There are people out there that would love to have 45 minutes of your time. And I'm not talking about a book. I'm, not talk, I'm talking about you sharing the life of Christ with them. I like using the discipleship booklet, and I try to do it. But... If we don't make the time, because you'll find a million other things to do. I could stay in my office 24 hours a day and still think I got more stuff to do. I could work around the church, do this, do that, and that's good. There are going to be seasons where you have to do that. But one-on-one, -on -one, working with people, familiarizing yourself, especially in places where you're not accepted, you're going to have to learn. You might want to go down to the donut shop. We're drinking coffee because he likes coffee. And he made friends with the donut shop or with the coffee maker. And I'm sure for the, for the sake of the gospel, he wants them. I've got that too, and you have that. You're going to have to figure out my community. I gotta, I gotta, I've got to develop some relationships here. Some people will get saved the first time you talk to them. But I find that many times that's not always the case. Paul, whenever he cast the demon out of that damsel in Philippi, and this she did for many days. Many days. I don't know how many, many days that was, but that wasn't a one-and-done time. That girl complicated his, his, his progress over and over again. And finally, he said, okay, it's time. And as soon as he did that, he had all kinds of problems. He was there pulling his shirt off and beating the snot out of him. But it takes time. You can't leapfrog time in working with people and winning the loss and discipling people. But who wants to make the time? And uh, discipling people, spiritual reproduction. No success without 
You know, you don't have to have a lot. God doesn't judge a church by its size. He judges it by its Christ-likeness. But every church can provide successors. Every church can provide servants. In our wonderful college, I have a chance to look into the eyes of these young people on a regular basis. Most of them come from churches from less than 70 people. Not from the big churches, but from some of the smaller churches that just they're one or two. But they got a pastor who's discipled them, loved them, led their parents to Christ, helped them. And I think anyone can do that. Chapter one, keep your doctrine sound. Chapter 2, make what a priority? Prayer. Chapter 3, spiritual reproduction. We'll talk about it more tomorrow. Thank you, Pastor, for the privilege.